0: Welcome to the Jurassic Park cast, the Jurassic Park podcast where guests chat with me about Michael Crichton's 1990 novel Jurassic Park, and also not that too. My name's Ryan Rogers, and I'm a big, dumb Jurassic Park fan. Welcome to episode 46, Dawn, recorded on February 4th. We're in the uh, the birthday gauntlet. My, my dad and my brother and sister and my son and my niece, and everybody seem to have birthdays all at the same time. We're in the middle of that right now. <laughs> Thanks for joining me today. A continued thank you to Christoph Oaks of Snail, S-N-A-L-E, and you can check out his incredible album on Spotify and Bandcamp. Today's intro is from the song Super Groovy, and our outro is T-Shirts. Corrections, in my last episode I said that in the life of Pi, the special effects company was bankrupted because of the time and money they spent creating the lion, when of course, in reality they went bankrupt because they were rendering the special effects of a tiger. My mistake. Tigers are obviously far more expensive to render than lions. I also have not correctly identified how to keep my cat from swearing during my guest interviews. I've tried feeding her in advance. I've tried singing her lullabies. But the cursed thing just can't help herself from strutting into the room while I'm hosting an interview and mewing the most hateful language I've ever heard. And I'm very sorry. She's a demented, cussing fiend. You all deserve better than that. Um, and also in episode 44, I brought up Alexander Karpatsev and Pevel Kubina, As examples of the Toronto Maple Leafs who have a surname beginning with the letter K, of which I feel the Toronto Maple Leafs have a long history of having, and I believe the Maple Leafs have a disproportionately large quantity of players with a surname beginning with the letter K. Am I right? I didn't know, so I looked it up. The Toronto Maple Leafs have 54 players in their history with surnames beginning with the letter K, and that is a lot. I was going to rattle off all their names in kind of a fun bit, but that's probably not time well spent. But did the Maple Leafs have the most players in their history with surnames beginning with the letter K? Well, I had to look into that, too. I crunched the numbers, and as you'd imagine, the teams with the most players on their historical rosters with surnames, beginning with the letter K, are mostly original six teams, because they have been in the NHL for more than 100 years, because they're original teams. But Toronto has the most of them. They're followed closely by the New York Rangers with 53, the Blackhawks and Bruins with 44, and then the Red Wings at 40. Third on the list, though, is the Islanders at 33, and unusually, the Montreal Canadiens, who... Only have 21 over their more than 100 years of history. So maybe the key to success has been not having players with, with the surnames beginning with the letter K in their team. Now, it's been a waste of time earlier. That was a waste of time. But now you know the Maple Leafs, as of today, have had more players on their team with surnames beginning with the letter K than any other NHL franchise in history. So the Leafs win that one. Good for us. Dinosaur News. I kind of appreciate that the news stories today are going to inform our reading of the rest of the chapter. Uh, It's kind of been interesting. Uh, Today we meet Ralph, the pony-sized pig-like infant Triceratops who eats hay. In the news, I've got a couple articles about Triceratops' eating, chewing, and what they might have eaten. Uh, So, the first article was published in June 2015 in the journal Science Advances. We have the article, Where Biomechanics and the Slicing Dentition of the Giant Horned Dinosaur Triceratops. The paper posits that reptiles rarely evolve occluding dentitions, which allow for the mastication of plant matter, whereas conversely mammals do it a lot. Dinosaurs stand out among reptiles in that several lineages acquired the capacity to masticate. In particular, the horn ceratopsian dinosaurs among the most successful late Cretaceous dinosaur lineages, evolving slicing dentitions for the exploitation of tough, bulky plant matter. The article says that the 9-meter-long Triceratops and its relatives evolved teeth that wore during feeding to create fullers, which are recessed central regions on cutting blades, on the chewing surfaces. This unique morphology serves to reduce friction during feeding. The authors were able to create a, quote, sophisticated three-dimensional biomechanical wear model that reveals how the complexes synergistically wore to create tribological properties, which are properties due to wearing down. These conclusions are made thanks to five major wear-relevant osseous tissues, which are enamel, hard mantle dentine, orthodentine, vasodentine, and coronal cementum, says the paper. These findings, along with similar discoveries in hadrosaurids, suggest that tissue-mediated changes in dental morphology may have played a role in the remarkable ecological diversification of these clades and perhaps other dinosaurian clades capable of mastication. Quote, a notable finding from our study is that the tissue suites acquired by ceratopsia are novel with regard to type and function. Most notable is that the cores of advanced ceratopsian teeth are constructed of vasodentine. Vasodentine's exceptional porosity promoted unusually high wear rates to form fullers. The porosity of this tissue reduces the overall structural integrity by causing stress concentrations, leading to the localized fracture and massive removal of material. This is a unique strategy among tetrapods for creating advanced tooth topography. Ceratopsian evolution of coronal cementum is also novel. This represents only the second instance where this tissue, commonly found in ungulates, has been found in reptiles, the other being its independent derivation in hadrosaurid dinosaurs. Notably, coronal cementum has been used as evidence of mammalian teeth being architecturally and biomechanically more sophisticated than those of reptiles. The paper says that their discovery of preserved tribological attributes in ceratopsia represents the second time such properties have been recovered from fossil dinosaur teeth. This, along with similar recovery from Pleistocene mammalian fossils and our ability to model wear in both extant and fossil grinding dentitions and now slicing teeth, point to a rich new avenue of exploration of dental biomechanics in a diversity of vertebrates. We stand to gain a more comprehensive understanding of how animals adapted to exploit new diets throughout time. Also, it is notable that our paleontological-driven tribological questions, such as those explored here, resulted in development of new engineering tools and computational models that can be applied to academic and commercial engineering applications, says the article. As that latest article investigated how the shape of the teeth inform our understanding of triceratops, here's an interesting study based on isotopic analysis. From the journal Paleogeography, Paleoclimatology, Paleoecology, Published in December 2022, the paper Stable Isotope Record of Triceratops from a Mass Accumulation Provides Insights into Triceratops Behavior and Ecology. Oxygen and carbon-stable isotopic compositions of structurally bound carbonate in fossils are commonly used to infer variations of ingested water and food sources, which are in turn related to environmental and climatic conditions, says the paper. Incremental isotopic records potentially provide insights into seasonality and migratory behavior. This paper presents isotopic records from a large spatially and temporally well-constrained Triceratops bone bed from the Lance Formation, which can elucidate the paleoecology and their ecosystem as well as their habitat use, diet, and possible migration. So, what were the results of their isotopic study? How and where did Triceratops prefer to live? The sedimentary and isotopic analyses strongly suggest that triceratops preferred living in a freshwater environment and that they lived intermittently between inland forests and coastal plains, suggesting that they migrated from one type of environment to the other intermittently. So, some interesting stuff on triceratopses. Whoa! That sound means we have breaking news, ladies and gentlemen, and mom. Hi mom, this just in the new snail album S N-A-L-E available on Spotify and Bandcamp is out! and it's out now my terrific guest to whom I owe a continued thank you Christoph Oaks of SNALE S-N-A-L-E and has released a new incredible album on Spotify and Bandcamp who just happened to record this interview before the release date was known but uh, but let it be known the album is out now it's called Charlemagne Um, you can follow the link in the show notes or search it up uh, S-N-A-L-E like I said so with the corrections and the breaking news and dinosaur news out of the way probably spoiled the surprise by now but please let me introduce you to my special guest episode returning this week is my terrific guest from episode three almost paradise and episode 25 version 4.4 it's the architect of the soundtrack to the jurassic park cast it's christoph oaks thank you for coming back
1: thank you it's it's an honor it's also an honor to have these songs on this podcast man i'm loving that i can't wait to give you more to work with should you decide to
0: Hmm.
1: my kids know the songs now
0: uh, <laughs> that rules. If the songs come that. on the playlist, they uh, they can hear my voice going over them even when it's not there. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So, uh, yeah, that's been
1: a lot of fun. Uh, any big updates on your side? What's going on? Yeah, man. Okay, so this was supposed to be a summer album. I had everything good to go. Um, I was having some trouble with the engineer I hired. We have since parted ways, like halfway through. So I had to start from scratch with a new engineer. But we are now... Very, very close to the finish line for the second record. I've been saying that for a thousand years, so I don't know. But it should be done before too long. Then I also have um, a third and fourth album almost finished recorded. So I don't know. I don't know. But the second one should be done soon. Um, And I have a strategy how to make the next kind of engineering, mixing, mastering process a little less painful. It's a slog. It really is. But hopefully uh, the next one will come out smoother, will be stronger after this experience, and then it won't take quite so long. But on top of that, I also got tapped to do the soundtrack to a movie that's being shot in Germany right now. It's a short, it's an amateur film, um, or rather an independent film. is probably a more uh, appropriate descriptor. Um but that included a synth score and then one song that was like a snail song. So those also I'm working on and uh, that's actually going to be I can I don't know how much I'm allowed to talk about with that movie yet. So that, that might be all I can say about that. But hopefully hopefully new stuff soon. Really cool. That's really exciting. That's a win for me. How did you how did you get connected with the the Germany project? Um so I am a known quantity in that circle anyway just both in having reviewed uh a lot of stuff also in just tape trading circles but i also have been researching and talking to these guys for a writing project for a very long time i tracked down the director who has been inactive since the early 90s and um after i talked to him uh, he decided to do a new movie and he had seen the faux trailer i did A couple years ago, I showed it to him, and I showed you know I did all the music for that, and so that's why he kind of thought, oh well, if I make another movie one day, I'll ask you to do a song, and I was jazzed about that. So that's kind of what happened there. I think that's probably as much as I can say about the project, but I'm very excited. It's a big win. It um you know anything to give me the appearance of legitimacy is really going to help me with my grifting and my um you know shenanigans.
0: Your your busking and such, yeah, that sounds great. I like the sound of it.
1: And how about uh,
0: your, your pursuit through Steven Seagal's resume? Finished. <laughs> you finished it?
1: I finished it. I made it through. the Yeah, so everyone at home, I watched every single Steven Seagal movie ever made. And I think I'm the only person in the world to ever do that, including Steven Seagal. There's no way he watched all these. Watched all. Um, these. Yeah, definitely. Like, even um, his mom wouldn't watch them. No way. No, I don't think she's seen anything oh, man, they're awful. They're so bad. I, would, I, I really expected to have more fun doing that than I ended up having. This was truly a painful, joyless slog. So many of his movies are so kind of bland and generic. It's not even the kind of thing that's fun to, like, rip on. They just all mush into one big, indiscernible gray marathon. It is awful. A couple noticeable things that were interesting is there's, at some point, he stops doing his own ADR, and I don't know if it's because he doesn't want to do it or because no one wants to work with him. ADR is, um, for the folks out there, it's when you dub dialogue in post. So sometimes, you know, it's because there was a flub on set. Sometimes it's because, you know, oh, this actor doesn't speak English as a first language or whatever, so we dub it later whatever. So in a lot of these movies, it's Steven Seagal's voice, of the time to 50% of the time and then the rest of the time it is very very clearly another person talking and to me that's like a fatal flaw I wouldn't let a movie come out if that was going on in it but for him it's like three fourths of his his catalog is that way wow yeah it's nuts we just kind of have like
0: that raspy whisper doesn't he like when he's being tough he doesn't raise his voice yeah
1: he talks like this and the guy tries to do it. The guy tries to be, he tries to, imi- he does a Steven Seagal imitation, but it is an imitation and you know, there's, there's no bones about it. So it's, it's pretty rough. Um, I think the other big highlights are the movie Sniper. Uh, I think it's Fred Olin Ray who was the director of that one. Now that's the perfect role for Steven Seagal because most of the time he's laying flat on his belly on the ground, which I think is the best that Steven Seagal really can do. And then there's a movie called Clementine. Now, Clementine is a, I think it's a Taiwanese martial arts gangster film, and I had the awareness going into it, Steven Seagal was in it very, very little, very small parts. I was like, oh, thank goodness. This is like a nice palate cleanser, like I can actually enjoy this one. But Clementine was one of the worst of them all. Clementine is not even really a martial arts gangster film what it ended up being was like a soap opera about a man who he has this little girl that's his daughter i guess and then he meets his ex-girlfriend or his ex-wife and she's like that little girl is seven years old we were together seven years ago so you were cheating on me and he's like she's your daughter and they literally did that this woman had a baby gave it up for adoption seems to have forgotten about it The dad adopted her, and then the wife comes back into the picture and has the shock reveal that this is actually her daughter. Like that's the movie.
0: Okay, that's quite the premise. I
1: imagine it would be good if it was executed properly, but almost certainly wasn't. No, this was a bad seed. This should have never happened. But yeah, anyway. So Steven Seagal, seen all of his movies. Um, I didn't even really say anything about it because it was so joyless. I just didn't want it. I just wanted it to be over. But I got through them.
0: Well, I can see it being like the the modern Tide Pod challenge where you can say, you know, kids out there, uh, everybody's doing it now. Everybody's watching all of Steven Seagal's movies on a dare. And it's it's harming kids. And there's
1: been a a public statement (laughs) telling kids not to do the challenge. (laughs) I don't think I could think of a better, like, comparison. Like, that's one to one. Like... Eating a Tide Pod or watching all of Steven Seagal's movies. That's exactly what it was like. Oh, my goodness. So I was trying
0: to brainstorm what other actors this might be a fun activity or, I don't know, uh, actors of, it's hard to even compare them. I came up with a few names. Let me know if you would like to do it again with Brendan Fraser. Oh, I'd love that. I love Brendan Fraser. Bunch of good ones, but maybe some bad ones in there.
1: (laughs) Yeah. No, I I would do that in a heartbeat. Blast from the Past is like an all-timer for me. Is it? Yeah, there's always oh, a good yeah. one or two in there. Blast from the past, airheads. Um, I mean, he did Encino Man, so he's a made man. I've been a Brendan Fraser defender for many, many years. Big fan. I believe it.
0: Yeah, he he did a lot of B stuff, but he was he was certainly. I don't think he ever cheated a role. He was really good.
1: Yeah, you know, for every you know, I mean, everyone's got their monkey bones or their George of the Jungle out there, but again. <laughs> Blast from the past, holds up. He was committed. In Georgia the Jungle, he was huge committed
0: to that role. He was in extraordinary shape.
1: Well, that's the thing. I, like, a couple years ago, I was there was a meme going around where people were throwing shade at him for having a big old fat old man belly. And it's like, dude, he's had a six-pack numerous times in his life. Can you say the same? Like, most of us cannot. Like, he doesn't owe us anything. He can be as fat and old as he wants to. He's done his work. You know, he's put in the time. Yeah, absolutely.
0: So Brendan Fraser doesn't quite uh, stack up against Steven Seagal. What about Nicolas
1: Cage movies? What do you think? Oh, uh, so I would definitely do that. I also very much like Nicolas Cage. He's in bad movies and sometimes does a bad job simply because he's not like, he doesn't, It's I I get the, uh, the impression he doesn't care. Like when he wants to, he's kind of like one of the best we have, but most of the time it's like, he's not really paying attention. He's just like, oh, what am I doing? Okay, sure. And he's just kind of like, He's. I think he's more interested in doing whatever he's, whatever he wants to do than whatever's going to make the movie right. Like I know that there's a story when he was doing Kickass. Um, his line delivery was puzzling and bizarre, and nobody told him to do that. And they were like, "What the f- is he doing?" Like, and then at some point, someone was like, "Oh, he's doing Adam West." Like at some point, like he made the decision, like, "Oh, I'm going to do this, this like Adam West," and then nobody could get him to do any different, and that was just the end of it. I, I, th- I find Nicolas Cage fascinating. What's genius
0: about that is that Batman disguises his voice, so that's so clever to to take on a new persona as the Batman. I never really... I thought Christian Bale, raspy voice. Okay, you're disguising your voice, but I didn't care for that. I thought that was a little awful, Uh, but (laughs) that's just me. Everybody else loved the movie, so that's okay, but Nicolas Cage choosing to disguise his voice as a Batman character playing Adam West, is that's genius in a way.
1: Yeah. Yeah, he's. I, I yeah. So again, you keep giving me these things that you think are going to be awful, and I'm loving them. But
0: there's going to be good ones, and them. then there's going to be a uh, there's going to be some that in
1: there that are going to be cringy. Keep them coming. Keep them coming. You got anybody else on your list? Yeah, Adam Sandler. Oh man. Okay, so Adam Sandler definitely has some turkeys in there. But um, I again, man, Billy Madison and Happy no, Gilmore are, are all. Really good ones. Yeah,
0: ones that we connect with anyhow. That uh, maybe I don't know if if. Uh, modern generations connect with those things the same way we go look how genius this is and they go no it's not
1: <laughs> well they're they're objectively wrong like if you can't get down with billy madison and happy gilmore you're objectively wrong all
0: right what about matthew mcconaughey
1: oh man um i have much less of a i have much less of a love for matthew mcconaughey than anybody else you mentioned so far uh, i would do it he seems like he's actually maybe not a piece of crap though he seems like he's an okay guy but Yeah, he's going to be in a lot of romantic comedies, which that's going to be, that would be a challenge for me. me. I I would do it, though. Mm -hmm. All right, we'll change the paradigm just a little. What about Halle Berry? Oh, man. Sure. I mean, I don't, I don't, is she in any kind, is she, is she overweight in any kind of genre? Like, does she do more of one type of movie than another? Or is she just kind of like across the board popping up here and there?
0: I don't know. She was in like the Flintstones with no lines. Wow, was she? Oh, she was. She was the secretary lady. Bulworth, with no lines. What was Bulworth? I don't remember that one. Bulworth was about Warren Beatty, was um, a disenfranchised politician who was going on his final run on the campaign trail, and he hires an assassin to kill himself because he wants out. And as he's campaigning, he speaks the truth because he's got got nothing to win because he's going to die. And he becomes extraordinarily popular for being like a plain-spoken, tell it like it is politician. And everybody suddenly he he's like, jeez, I could win and make a difference. And I'm like, I'm, I'm not being a complete liar all my life. Maybe this is better for me. So he tries to call off the hit, but he can't f- get in touch with the assassin, <laughs> and he doesn't know who the assassin is. And Halle Berry is like this like mysterious stranger in the in the shadows that is always around him, and he doesn't know who she is or why. It was a it was a good movie.
1: Yeah, that actually sounds pretty good. Yeah, I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to check, check that, that one out. out. I would recommend Bulwer for sure. All right, how about the Olsen Twins? Oh, dude, that okay. That sounds like the best challenge because that's gonna be like 170 movies shot over the course of two years. They're all gonna be exactly the same. It's gonna be like the twins go to Hawaii and like wacky hap, you know, happenstance. That that sounds great. I just, how could one acquire all of those movies? I wonder if like any of them, I would I would imagine most of those going to be like direct to TBS like movies, but I really don't know. Maybe they did all come out on video.
0: They could Maybe have their own streaming service. Video. You're right. They, uh, <laughs> you go and get the whole collection. The whole library is there.
1: I think that that's the mo the, of all of them that you've you've said so far. That's definitely the the most challenging in the same way that Steven Seagal was.
0: Mm. I still got Jennifer Lopez.
1: Well, you know. Um, I am honor-bound to watch absolutely anything, and if you pose it correctly, you can trick me into watching, like, whatever you want.
0: Speaking of things that are, are sometimes good and sometimes bad, today you're rejoining me and we're going to discuss a 2018 film produced on a budget of reportedly $35,000 that became an international viral sensation which continues to capitalize on the incredible star power of Velociraptors. Last time we watched Tammy and the T-Rex and laughed that there was a typo in the title, For Tanny and the T-Rex, today this film is literally based on an autocorrect from the writer and director Brendan Steer who was typing Velociraptor and it was autocorrected to Velocipaster. Or so the legend goes. I believe that story. (laughs) (laughs) So when I said, hey, let's cover Velocipaster, your initial
1: feelings about that were somewhat mixed, maybe? What did did you think? I guess that's a fair way. So... The worst thing to do on a podcast is like not have anything to say, and we're gonna say a lot of things here. But like the long and the short of it is like I don't really like Velocipaster. I've definitely seen it. I don't wanna be a party pooper. I know a lot of people had fun with it, but I'm I'm just not a fan. I think that of this kind of movie, the best you can hope for is sincerity that just manages to somehow entertain you by way of being insane or or particularly badly handled but when something is like deliberately crummy um then you need to really actually find like real authentic wit and i just feel like this movie just for me i don't know we'll, we'll definitely get into it but I, I feel like it's kind of a one note joke that wears thin for me
0: so the kind of the story behind this film uh, as reported before uh, it was a then at that moment, uh, a film student in Manhattan, Brendan Steer, was typing Velociraptor when autocorrected uh, recommended that it was Velocipaster, and that must have given him a memorable chuckle uh, to revisit that thought. And eventually, he returned to that idea and fleshed out the concept uh, for a trailer. So he he had made some sort of video or a movie for for his film school. There was a series of trailers in a, in a sequence, and this was one of those. And he I guess posted them all up on YouTube, and that video went viral in a way that none of the others did of course and that was sort of the impetus towards making looking closer into this concept because he was getting a lot of positive feedback on what to do with that is how many how many do you recall movies are
1: based off of a youtube or a trailer so actually the tr- the answer to that is quite a few so um this has always kind of been a tradition but it really seems to have graduated to sort of the new standard uh, in the wake of Robert Rodriguez's and Quentin Tarantino's Grindhouse. Uh, They had a number of fake trailers in that, um, you know, very, very famously Machete, which ended up being two movies. Um, Eli Roth did Thanksgiving. which he says he is now finally going to turn into a full-length feature but during the making of that they also had a contest where they invited independent filmmakers to do their own trailers for it with the promise of them making it into the movie and uh, the winner was this gentleman who did Hobo with the shotgun and then it still wasn't in the movie so I don't really know what happened there but he did a trailer for Hobo with the shotgun the trailer was great and he ended up making his own version of it with Rutger Hauer in the lead and Hobo with a Shotgun is really, really good. Since then, there, there have definitely been a number of other movies that begin their lives as, as trailers. I mean, I've almost kind of tried to do that myself a little bit, although it was a little bit backwards. In this case, Pasture is born as a trailer. He does two unsuccessful crowdfunding efforts to get it off the ground before he finally hooks up with a private investor. That guy bankrolls it. He shoots the movie you know, and it ends up being pretty successful. It, I think probably a big source of uh, viewership for it is like Amazon Prime. I'm pretty sure that's where most of the people I know saw it because it was just like haunting the menu for Amazon Prime for like quite a while.
0: And maybe people were reading it or checking it out. Maybe they weren't. So I had set up like a, a Google alert, you know, maybe decades ago for dinosaur news. And whenever something for a dinosaur came up, I would get uh, an email each every day and it would have something in it. And so this trailer wound up in it at one point. And uh, the trailer compelled me to be very excited about it. And I remember my history with it was, boy, that looks great. Cool. I hope they do make that into a movie. That could be a lot of fun. Because I thought, that really, the trailer captured the spirit out of it so well. There were really good parts of it. And then uh, when it came out, I was like, wow. But you couldn't see it anywhere. It had, you had to like go to like a festival to find it. And that was for a while. And there was no certainty that it was ever going to get like distribution rights or anything like that, like you never knew what you're gonna get and eventually they it, it got there but it, it gained a lot of notoriety internationally for this like sleeper horror comedy and we saw it at its Canadian premiere in Hamilton, which was interesting. We, uh, I had no idea it was going to be there. I never thought I was going to be able to see it and then there was this chance to go see it and I remember the experience was this <laughs> we go we go out there it's a midnight screening and before it there was something called the Jerry Show. And The Jerry Show was like this little short film they tacked on at the front. And it was disturbing in like all the ways that it could be. And uh, and then Velocipaster came out. And I remember towards the end of it, would be like nodding off because like, wow, this is kind of dragging and it is very late. <laughs> but uh, I was thrilled to be able to go there. And I think the, the, the excitement of like this rarity compelled me to see it in a world where I never thought it was actually going to be possible which is crazy. Cause like in this day and age, everything is somewhere. Right. And now it is. You can...
1: That is amazing actually. So that's that. So you actually saw this thing on the big screen. Yeah. Wow. That's great. I probably would have been all over that if I had, uh, any, any knowledge of it showing, uh, in Portland or even Seattle, but I don't follow things like that as well as I should, but no, that that's pretty amazing. Um, the Jerry Show though has definitely piqued my interest. I'm gonna to have to track that thing down. How long was it?
0: Oh, that's a good approximately question. 15 minutes. Perfect. So like, it's a guy who's getting bullied by, I guess, a roommate that happens to be Hitler's disembodied head in his stomach.
1: Yeah, hold on, Jerry's got Adolf Hitler's head in his stomach. Like at for an abdomen, and
0: Hitler just treats him like crap. Uh, I think Hitler's gay. And I don't think Jerry is. And uh, it's, there's this, it's something. It's horrendous. It's, and, and I, oh, I, I, it is rotten, gross, horrifying, disturbing. I mean, it hits all the boxes.
1: It's something. Yeah, no, I got to find that immediately. That sounds great.
0: <laughs> so the, I, from what I understood, the, the power of, of uh, that trailer compelled uh, the director to, to pre- Invest into making a script, and it sounds like he poured over it for years, trying to figure out what was he trying to say about the Catholic Church and what sort of higher concept did a a story about uh, a man of the cloth turning into a dinosaur mean? And then I think one of the first flaws in in a film when they're creating it's uh it's taking your high concept out and having it not about any of that. And I think one of its it becomes a little directionless when it quits standing for something and, it, and you don't know what it means. If it's just supposed to be a joy ride, that's okay, but it quits kind of being a story. You know what I mean? And I think yeah. is harmed in that way.
1: <laughs> yeah, you could kind of... I mean, if you wanted to really give this thing some credit, you could say, you know, oh, it's about rejecting the trappings of, you know, the, the arbitrary expectations society puts on you to do this or that, and just kind of embracing who you really are, you know, become the dinosaur, become the savage, you know, rejecting the, the rules of Catholicism, which, I mean, this movie's pretty hard on the Catholic Church in a lot of ways. It, it's inter- interesting because one of the most important features of the film is his relationship first friendly and then eventually romantic with a prostitute and they kind of pull each other towards the middle morally like as the movie starts out she's kind of like pretty far out this direction morally he's pretty far out this other way on sort of the spectrum and they kind of pull each other towards the center and meet in the middle she she you know is to some degree i would i would say reformed whether or not that's an appropriate way to phrase it uh, and kind of abandons her ways, but then at the same time, he's no longer going to be really, you know, he's not no longer a pastor. So, you know, he leaves the church. Yeah. So that is maybe an interesting concept that they're playing with him. Oh, you know, throwing away his former identity and kind of like becoming something of a, of a free spirit That that's definitely in there, I guess. But I agree. Um, The movie, I think we're given a little bit too much credit. I think that what we have more than anything else is something that's kind of like borrowing from a lot of other pop culture sources. And and really, the crux of this is is that the title kind of rhymes with, you know, raptor with pastor. It's like a sideways rhyme. And that's really the movie. The movie is less about like, you know, leaving the Catholic Church and embracing the, you you know, your true self and more about, hey, these words kind of rhyme.
0: Yeah, and I think when they when that higher concept gets extracted for the purpose of just making a a jokey movie, it kind of evolves into uh, a series of sketches and a couple music videos with a with a narrative going through it and um, some interesting characters in each of the sketches and things like that. But it in terms of like yeah, it having a higher meaning that is extracted noticeably so, and I think um, yeah, they're just looking to be fun. There are fun ways to make a, a satire but it never became a satire. Uh, There are fun ways to make a pure comedy, and it never quite became a pure comedy. And there are ways to do horror and be funny, or vice versa, be funny, but then do some horror. And it doesn't quite do that either. Like, it's not at
1: any point really scary. No, definitely not. Well, honestly, I think that there's an argument to be made for horror no longer really being about being scared. Like, I mean, true pure horror, definitely, you know, but... And we are seeing some of that. I think, you know, recently Smile came out. That was one that definitely was aiming for really frightening. Same, you know, Barbarian tried a bit to be scary, but also tried a bit to be kind of, you know, gonzo. But for the most part, people go to horror movies to have fun, not really to be scared in this day and age. So whether or not there's any, like, legitimacy to the claim that this is a horror comedy is, like, you know, that's a bigger argument. But I would say that... Yeah, this this movie kind of doesn't ever really establish itself as, as anything greater than, you know, an autocorrect, unfortunately. I think there are some funny characters in it. I want to point out my favorite character in the movie, Frankie Mermaid, who is the pimp at the beginning of the movie. I know that this is kind of like a PG podcast, so you're going to bleep some of this, but he's Frankie Mermaid because he's swimming in bitches, which is incredible, Also, the actor who plays Frankie Mermaid is really, really good, but he also dies right away. So, like, he's barely in the movie. I wish they would have kept him around throughout the whole thing. He could end up being, like, you know, the big bad at the end, like, with a little bit of reworking. I thought he was great, and I do think that there's some good performances in this. I think the lead is pretty strong. Both leads are, I would say. They're, They're actually far better than you would expect for a movie like this, and there's some funny gags, too the sort of mentor priest for our hero recounts some kind of um, haunting war memories he has, which for me are mostly pretty funny. But um, a lot of the gigs in the movie are also gigs that you've seen 200,000 times in other movies, including a lot of student films. They're kind of just borrowed jokes. I think the one that really sticks out to me is where the characters are laughing and instead of cutting away like your standard 1980s pop film it kind of just stays on them and lets them keep laughing long after it stops being funny and just gets to be awkward the movie kind of does that thing a lot one of them even checks his watch at one time like he's waiting for the scene to cut and that's like a gloriously unfunny unwitting concept that like has been done many many times i think that stuff like that really undermines what i want this movie to be which is either like an actual comedy or like an actual gonzo movie that takes itself seriously and comes across being wacky.
0: Part of it being a comedy is that uh, a comedy writer has to kind of like lead you into a frame of mind and then do a subversion, which makes you laugh. You're expecting one thing and it tricks you and there's a surprise. And part of that surprise is the joy of, of receiving a joke. And I find that when I listen to the the, the director's commentary, there are elements that are funny, but there is... Like, you, you would have to be acutely aware to look for them, or else it's not going to hit you. For example, um, in the opening scene, Father Doug is driving to China, and it is daytime outside of the car, but inside of the car, it is lit as if it were nighttime, and they thought, oh, that's so funny. And maybe that is kind of like a, a funny subversion on, on how would a, a cheap movie maybe not be able to match their lighting and their scenes and, and their backgrounds and stuff like that. That, I guess, could be funny, but you don't even really, like, you kind of notice it, but it doesn't stand out. And you certainly don't get a laugh out of it. It's just kind of bizarre.
1: I've seen this movie several times and I had no idea yeah. that was
0: Um Another one is there. So the concept is there are a bunch, there's a gang of ninjas that come from China, where I don't believe that ninjas come from. And they speak Korean, which, I mean, you'd have to be fairly aware of your different asian dialects to to pick that up which i am not
1: bro i can't tell korean i can't i got no idea yeah you could show me as many asian languages and dialects as you want to i will know zero of them from from one another
0: and so that's a funny clever subversion i guess as a joke that you could like put in as a filmmaker but it doesn't succeed as a good joke if um if i don't laugh at it or if nobody laughs at it, and I can't, and so these are the details that are in there that they're aware of that they're chocolate. They're like Andy Kaufman at home going, nobody knows, and uh, and that that it's odd in terms of like a seasoned comedy writer might do something differently.
1: Yeah, I think all of your jokes in your comedy better not be inside jokes that you refuse to share with the audience. Like too many of the jokes that are in there are like, oh well, here's I'll just put this in. This is a joke, right? This this is a joke. I saw it in another movie, so it was a joke then. So you bet its funny now, right? Like, but then the actual material is like hidden away from us somewhere. Mm-hmm.
0: And then another sort of uh, behind-the-scenes, inside joke that they snuck into the film, believing that it was going to be a source of humor, was that um, the director casted his father to play the, the, the father Doug's mentor. So Father Stewart is uh, Brendan Steer's dad, and. He was supposed to be terrible, and he actually gives a very authentic performance as a concerned priest. And uh, did you realize that that was not an actor playing Father Stewart?
1: No, I didn't. But also, that's not a joke, buddy. That's just casting someone you can get for free. Everybody does that.
0: They were hope. The hope was, the, the ambition was, the purpose was that he was going to be terrible, and that was going to be the, a source of, of humor and then that, that was another execution just didn't work out. His dad turned out to be serviceable
1: and uh, borderlining on pretty good. And uh... yeah. And honestly, like, in a in a movie of that caliber, like most of the other actors were worse, like the guy who ends up. Oh, so spoiler alert, plug your ears. But one of the ninjas is revealed to be the brother of the hero. I mean, that guy was worse than Father Stewart. Yeah,
0: yeah, he was, uh, I, that whole, yeah, his whole bit was unusual, that's for sure. Well, maybe we should get into the plot a little bit. We're, we're kind of touching on characters yeah, and yeah. things like that. Um, so after losing his parents, a priest travels to China, where he inherits a mysterious ability that allows him to turn into a dinosaur. And by this new power, a hooker convinces him to use it to fight crime and ninjas. <laughs> so that's how we start with, yeah, maybe we can go through some of the the, the the cast here. Well, maybe we'll go through the plot. We can touch on the cast as we go. So, so we start off at the beginning of the film. We meet Doug, and his he loses his parents in a car bombing, and right,
1: uh, right, and so, Ugh. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, this is one of the, the the cute jokes that they put in where his parents are blown up in a car bombing. But rather than like show any of it, it just cuts to like a parking lot shot with the text "car special effect." You know, something like that, like like an indication that it either was neglected to be put in or 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 whatever, which, oh, boy, that's real cute. That, that kind of set the tone for me like we were going to be in for for quite a few of those kind of jokes. And we were. But yes, his parents are murdered in a ver- visual effect shot that we did not get to see. But we are told is is supposed to be there.
0: And so Doug finds himself in a crisis of faith and he drives to China upon the guidance of his mentor, Father Stewart. And in uh, the forest of China, he finds a villager being hunted by ninjas who is mortally wounded and gives him or, or gifts him a dragon tooth. And uh, the tooth pricks him in the hand. And then he passes out. He finds a fever, passes out, and wakes up back uh, at home in the church. And part of the joke As in this you. year was that uh, they were obviously not in China. They were not on set. And they're just kind of going through like a regular looking
1: forest you say forest. I say edge of a public park.
0: I think it was in Pennsylvania or I don't know exactly where they were, but the joke is this is cheap and this is not China, but we say it's China mm. and it's in, mm-hmm. that's kind of the, the wink that we it, it's asking for still. And then the next moment we meet Carol. Uh, she is a hooker under a pimp's cruel control and she's told to work. And that night she is mugged, but saved by a ravenous dinosaur uh so this is where we first meet Frankie Mermaid.
1: My boy. My boy Frankie Mermaid. Yeah, so I've got notes on him. So um
0: there are a series of friends that they ca- that the director cast to be in the film with him and he used them in particular because they had kind of like neat characters. They're almost like I don't want to say the groundlings from uh from like uh the Second City vein, but they came with like neat characters ready to go and they sort of ad-libbed and improvised and became I mean, I don't think they got writing credits, but they they created this, these characters and they created these narratives that they provided. Uh, and so this actor was Fernando De Castro. I believe he was a cam operator in the trailer, so they might have gone to film film school together. But this guy was he shaves his head, so like he isn't actually bald. He shaved all that hair off, had the hair got down to his shoulders on either side, and he came in with that character locked and loaded, and it's a highlight.
1: It really is. He, physically, he looks kind of like a Matt Berry type to me. I really, really loved Frankie Mermaids. I wish that he we got more of him. I would have rather... I, let's get the Frankie Mermaids prequel. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> that is that's It's essential, yeah. So, um, Before we get too far away from it, I wanted to briefly touch on the him going to China thing. Okay, yes. So this is actually a, a, a thing worth mentioning. This is an homage to the rich motion picture heritage of people going to like the far reaches of Asia and getting lycanthropy which I don't know if you were aware that that's definitely a thing but it definitely is uh the earliest example I can think of is Werewolf of London and in that one uh the lead goes to I think Tibet and is I think I think he gets bitten by a wolf comes back as a werewolf but we see this actually again and again in a lot of these movies. It seems to be a pretty standard origin for a werewolf or lycanthrope uh, type character. It's used a couple times in the Valdemar, Valdemar Daninsky films. So Paul Naschy, a.k.a. Jacinto Molina, is kind of like the greatest Spanish horror star of all time. And he was in... An indeterminate number of movies where he played a character called Voldemar Daninsky, who was kind of like the horror movie version of James Bond and Godzilla mixed together. Because he was like this, as a human, he was like this suave, heroic, handsome man who, in every movie, he meets the love of his life and that's that's her she's oh man she's the one for you and then of course at the end of the movie the next one starts she's gone never mentioned again and another one comes and that's that and, and now that's his you know one true love every single time he also is just like grotesquely negligent about his werewolfism and just does not take the proper precautions to make sure him turning into a wolf beast doesn't get out of hand uh he always ends up you know there's a lot of collateral damage but in a lot of these movies he also Takes the uh, Godzilla path towards like enemy of our enemy as our friend, and he ends up clobbering Dracula and saving the day at the end. So that happens a lot. Valdemar um, Daninsky does the whole go to Tibet and or you know somewhere in Asia and become a werewolf thing several times too in a lot of these movies. So that is actually uh, that that's kind of a thing that I did appreciate here that he's kind of drawing upon that rich heritage you know I don't know maybe that's another example of something the audience may not be fully aware of but that's something they do right Mm -hmm. I think
0: I know there's a long tradition especially in horror of there being some you know other culture that in which there is evil and darkness and you uh somebody goes into the bayou somebody goes into you know Haiti somebody goes into a first nations burial ground somebody goes to China and they're they, they receive, you know, a curse or an artifact or something like that. And like this, this whole xenophobic concept that there's mystery and danger in the unknown cultures uh, it has, I think, traditionally been a source of inspiration uh, in terms of storytelling in this adventure sort of landscape. And so this, yeah, I mean, it all seems to tie together from that, that fear of the unknown as adventurers return <laughs> with the mummy's curse.
1: It's also a big win that he depicts China as a Pennsylvania public park where for sure someone is like playing frisbee with their dog just out of frame just like in real, like in real
0: china <laughs> uh, after carol she's told by frankie the mermaid she has to go work and he insists that she goes i think into a derelict area and so she's on like a wooden path she's out in the woods i don't know where how business it's is out there
1: it's definitely the same place china and the ninja campus yes. film
0: and so the exact same place she's confronted by um, an actor named Alec Lambert, who is also in the trailer, so they must have been in film school together as well, he reprises uh, an appearance into this uh, expanded universe of the Velocipaster. As the mugger, he insists that he gets her purse or something like that or all her money. And he is massacred by the ravenous dinosaur, which we don't get a good look at. But there could have been... In terms of, like, you've got maybe a, a, a compromised costume. And we can admit the costume is goofy there's still ways to approach this scene that might have been more successful in terms of being not funny but like dramatic or scary or mm-hmm. or the plotting the suspense these things were not you know conceived to be important putting this together in a, in a strange way because it's supposed to be like a gore uh shot and, and maybe intended to be goofy but it wasn't but not portrayed as like a scary moment it was um and that's one of those moments where like even Uh, a very talented person who is on a small budget would find a way to work in the dark and show bits and pieces and, you know, the pacing and the plotting that could have come together a little bit more tightly in, in, in a, in a picture that was, I don't know, again, the concept kind of got lost when they're putting it all together, you know, it feels that way.
1: Yeah. No, it really reeked of like, oh man, we can't really show anything. Let's just not show it." it. It really felt like that. So, I mean, this is not the time to take the Val Luton approach of just, like, not showing the monster. Like, we're over that as a people. We we need to see the monster. You can't just get away with saying, well, your imagination is the scariest thing. Of all. No, that doesn't work anymore. We need to see the monster, especially in this movie. And they kind of, they do show it at the end. And that's, I think it's supposed to be something of a reveal, the goofiness of it. But man, now nah, come on. Give us the goofiness earlier. Give us something. Like, it can completely suck. It's just, if you give us nothing, that's when there's a problem. And, and that is what they do. They give us nothing.
0: So uh, the next morning, Doug is revealed to be the dinosaur, and he confronts his new monstrous identity. And Carol suggests that he satisfy his hunger for the flesh by feeding on only bad people's flesh. And uh, But he disagrees, and he heads back to work to take confessions at the church. Uh, and it happens to be the one person who chooses that day to go in for confession is...
1: My boy, Frankie Mermaids.
0: <laughs> and so he confesses to all his evil deeds, including being the bomber. Which is hilarious. Yeah, it's a dynamite line. Again, this guy was extraordinary. He, he, he If you're going to go see the movie, watch out for him and come away appreciating that you got to see that. That's for sure. And uh, so he confesses to to being the bomber who killed Doug's parents in a very contrived but funny and silly way. And then uh, Doug's velocir- pastor identity massacres Frank. <laughs> and it, uh, he has to go back home and admit to Carol what he's done. And I think this is where the relationship really grows
1: because she suddenly feels safe with someone for the first time. And if this... I just can't believe we have a movie uh, where a priest like gets into murder and hookers and dinosaur-like transformations, and I still wasn't loving it. Like come on, man. Like on paper, this really does sound like a win. And the more you're talking about it, like if I'm just listening to your description and imagining the movie, I get a much better movie in my mind, but yeah. And
0: you know what? The pieces are there. It, I think really, really is on how not so much you frame the shot, but you can build suspense with how long a shot lasts or, but they only ever seem to use that for like comedic effect. Like, you should have cut by now, but they're still laughing, and they're going to keep laughing until you say cut. And there, that's where they choose to, to extend the scene or to draw out a moment, as opposed to where, where could it have been used, very cheaply and practically in a way that it conveys more meaning. Uh, but it, the lingering shot or the suspenseful hold was always for a joke, and uh, and I don't know if they're always funny. I guess.
1: It's just a missed opportunity that's all yeah
0: but uh then we get into i think two of the highlights in this film are the are the music videos that he creates uh this one is a montage of doug deciding to take up the claw and he begins uh studying the bible harder he be- begins learning about dinosaurs because he knows nothing about dinosaurs and uh and he, he's kind of approaching the concept of dating carol and i think there's an authentic relationship that the that um the actress who plays carol is Alyssa Kaminsky. Gregory James Cohan plays Doug Jones. The two of them are authentically good together. They have, you know, ridiculous They lines. are. Yeah, but it's not, they that, are. It's not hating Christians and, and uh, Natalie Portman, you know. It's good. They, yeah, they achieve it in a way that it, it, it rises above, perhaps, uh, the film that they're in, which is interesting.
1: Yeah, she she is really good. He's good, too, but she's really good, and they really do have chemistry together. This is the chapter of the movie where it's pretty much the, the Incredible Hulk, where he's pretty much just like now a superhero that uses his Jekyll and Hyde werewolf powers to, to fight crime with his former hooker sidekick. And, and it does kind of have like a um, Bill Bixby era Hulk type vibe to it because they, the whole time they're kind of leaning on that like 70s, 80s grindhouse um, faux aesthetic. The music videos, man, you know what? I was going to say the thing about the movie I wish was different was was actually the soundtrack. Because to me, this is like a very 1999 pop radio soundtrack. And I kind of wish they'd gone all the way because they, they are kind of trying to do the 70s, 80s Grand House vibe. Why didn't we get some like 70s, 80s kind of funky music in there to kind of take it the rest of the way? I think that would have been a small step towards kind of fully completing, landing the trick. I think that would have, been, that would have helped the movie.
0: It would have certainly contextualized it in a, in a, a different era, but I, I like the music videos. I think the songs are pretty rockin'. <laughs> I was down for it.
1: They are definitely, they're rockin' songs. They are rockin' songs, for sure. I just feel like it's weird to see that music when the, you know, I'm looking at a 1976 and I'm hearing a the 1999 in, in my mind, I feel like if, if we would have had, if we would had like music, it would have taken it a step further. I can see what
0: you're saying. Like it left, it to be ska music. And then that would be, you know, obviously sticking out.
1: <laughs> I was oh, down man. for it. I thought the- oh, okay. Edit this out. But you and me, we're going to, we're going to crowdfund Velasca pastor. We're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna snake this idea from him. We're gonna, I'm gonna get a ska band. There's gonna be a lot more trumpet. This is gonna be great. This is gonna put your kids through college. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and I was thinking, looking at those two music videos and the shots that they put into it, and the stories they tell, because the one, the one story is about uh, their their love kind of coming together, and the second one is them coming together as a as a single unit that that is committed to fighting against evil, and. They were both really, really, I think, wonderfully put together, and they tell really strong stories. And I thought to myself, you know, if you had a guy like this, a director and a, and a cinematographer, the whole crew, and you, for $35,000, made those two music videos, that's actually a pretty good value. That's actually, you know,
1: pretty good stuff. It does, it does seem like the videos show that he knows how to do this. It's weird that, like... He tells the story a lot better in those small, isolated sequences than kind of in the whole of the mm-hmm. movie.
0: And that's no small feat. I mean, there's no dialogue in those movies. He brings the characters together in a meaningful way without any dialogue, all direction, no written word. And they, I mean, it's kind of contrived because it's jokey, but it's still there's still real moments. And we, like we said, the, the character, the actors sell them really strongly. So, I, th- those two are sincere moments in the film that that I think really. Raise it to another level in some respects.
1: I would agree with that, and and I, I think probably the thing you're sort of saying without saying is that a big part of what makes this work so well is just their the kind of the innate chemistry of those actors, and I think that that's that's probably a big part of it. I think that um yeah they were really good together, and then I guess
0: that contrast contrasts very strongly about uh, the chemistry between. Uh, we finally get introduced to our villain now that Frankie the Mermaid has been dispatched. Is Wei Chan? And his gang of ninjas and then the, the the estranged brother but we don't know he's an estranged brother and i don't know if we get his name but there's obviously no chemistry between these two and that is the joke right. and it uh we get to meet wei chan uh again this is where all these jokes are about him speaking in not uh japanese them being ninjas not from japan um and they're importing uh they're, he's become concerned uh, this crime lord that their sources of income is drying up because this Velocipastor, Pastor the Dragon Warrior has been uh, massacring his supply chain of money but that brings us back to Father Stewart confronting Doug about hanging out with a hooker so obviously as you made a point uh, here we have a priest that's you know questioning his vows and obviously hanging out with somebody that's dressed as demonstrably a prostitute uh, <laughs> so father stewart confronts straight
1: Doug up, straight up Straight up, Jesus hung out with hookers, bro. Like, straight up, that happened. That's in it. That's the whole thing. Checkmate, Father Stewart. <laughs> and uh, so he he's prompting Doug
0: to reveal... He's trying to get him to confess it, like, come out of the, you know, say, admit what you're doing here, what you're doing is wrong. And Doug instead wants to share that he is actually the Veloci pastor, But it, it's difficult <laughs> for him. <laughs> and then um, we get a flashback during this uh, to Doug's youth. Now, this is where the... the like I said, there are sketches and bits that kind of get tied in together. And I mean, this wasn't a long movie and there are already bits that kind of, I guess, pay off as a joke later, but maybe they didn't have to be there at all. (laughs) But uh, we get a flashback to Doug's youth. His family is specifically praising him for being their favorite and one and only son. And uh, they're so proud of him for going to priest college or whatever they called it. (laughs) I don't, quite remember why that flashback was in there we're gonna get a series of other flashbacks that are there for no reason as father stewart then decides he's going to try and exorcise the Velosa pastor from father doug by taking him to an occult uh specialist
1: healer which is right. uh which happens to be an, uh, who he knows from the- is this another one of his buddies doing doing like a canned character he had ready to no. go i feel like it is I, as i understand it, it has to be right this guy comes in and right. he, this guy comes in. and He, he comes is- in very, very Chris Angel mind freak.
0: So he has the director's commentary. His ears are surgically pointed. He, the actor, that man oh, opted, said, this is what I would like my ears to be. And uh, that's who he is. <laughs> and that's wonder. Uh, what do I have? Is I know I have it written down.
1: This whole sequence is this is folks. This is padding. You, like, you know, you, you mentioned quite a few of these scenes probably didn't be in this already very short movie. That's absolutely the whole exorcism subplot. It it comes and goes without much of a payoff. Uh, The consequence of the the exorcism, I think, is that they botch it and it makes, like, supposedly they kind of make you think that the Velociraptor is going to be now less under control in some way, but that doesn't really seem to be the case. It's pretty much just status quo after that. So there's really no reason for it to happen, and it just draws out the the runtime a, a bit further. With our weird, surgically pointed ear man.
0: Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think we needed it. And as far as I understand it, this guy is the authentic, what you see is what you get. His name is Aurelio Voltaire. He plays a character named Altair. Uh, They hardly even changed his name and just said, I would love for you to be in this.
1: Uh, Get in there and do it. Okay, so so what this is, is when you have a weirdo, who will be in your movie? You just go with it.
0: And he brings a great, interesting, fun little character. And uh, like I said, it's kind of like a series of sketches where where these uh, these groundlings get to come in and bring their uh, Elvira, Mistress of the Dark or bring their Pee Wee Herman and uh, get to play for a little bit. And then
1: this whole episode, I'm going to be backpedaling like crazy because I retracted all my criticism now. I would have done the same thing if I met some weird some weird occult guy with pointy ears who would consent to being in a movie. I would just put him in it. I definitely would. Okay, so I I formally apologize. Yes, that it, he made the right call. He did the right thing. What a rare thing. The, these
0: these uh, these are all these like metaphysical or or ironic inclusions that that we aren't sharing in the joy with. Right? Like we don't get it. It is still Andy Kaufman. It's, uh the the humor of that we're not sharing in it. We're not part of the joke, and that's another issue. Whereas it, I guess with a with a different perspective. Maybe you see it differently, but you need to be led into that perspective. There has to be something that connects you to that, or else it doesn't make sense. Like We don't know these people or these characters, so it's not like when there's a cameo, when George Went walks onto the set, and we all go, hey, it's Norm! We need to know that. If we don't know that, we aren't going to be excited to
1: see him. So it's kind of like a Tim and Eric thing, where Tim and Eric deliberately find the worst people they can get and put them in their stuff, and that's the joke. Except for the problem is, disastrously, none of these people suck. So he got these he got these people with you know, really banking on them being awful, and then they just kind of weren't. What do you do when like <laughs> when you're making a movie, I guess you gotta you gotta vet these folks ahead of time and make sure that they're really hopeless because otherwise you're gonna get there and they're gonna do a good job and you're just gonna be like, well, sh- that didn't work at all.
0: Well I think his intuition was that these are great characters and these characters belong somewhere and this is his chance to share them with the world and maybe their only chance is to be shared with no budget and a lot of passion uh, that <laughs> that's a
1: good way to man you're so there. much you're so much nicer than I am about your read on this but <laughs> <laughs> I need to be a better person you're showing me that I
0: think um like I said I was passionate I was a little bit more in depth on how this one was coming together
1: unlike most other films basically this, you know what this is? This is full circle. This is like, just like the priest and the hooker meet in the middle. We're going to meet in the middle. I'm going to be a little bit nicer at the end of this. I don't know if you're going to be any more jaded, though. Maybe not. Maybe maybe you're invincible.
0: Like, this whole podcast has been a whole exercise in looking too closely at things. And I think I think they weren't meant to be studied like this in a lot of ways. <laughs> this isn't the Sistine Chapel, you know? <laughs> you're not yeah. supposed to spend hours poring over it.
1: I, uh, I do a lot of that. I, I know how you feel.
0: So, again, part of the, the this script that's smacked together with different moments, uh, we now get a flashback um, of Father Stewart's time as Sergeant Stewart during, the, I believe, the Vietnam War. And uh, he, we meet another character that joins the show uh, to have a moment called War Buddy Ali. What did you think of... The, the actor's name was David Sokol. I don't know uh, how he's related to everyone here, but uh, what did you think of War Buddy Ali and his...
1: <laughs> kind of trope of having a whole family waiting for him back home well so this was funny to me i i liked most of i liked most of the war flashback stuff it's mostly just you know it's what you think it's like him with his buddies and like yes sir this is going great nothing's bad's gonna happen mm-hmm instant murder and that's kind of like and it happens again and again and that's great I loved that. Um, his, this particular buddy is talking, you know, all about how great it's going to be. He's going to get home unscathed, blah, 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 blah. And then of course he's instantly brutally destroyed, um, in like some of the gorier moments happen during these flashbacks. Um, yeah, I think this is, this is a sequence where the jokes do work for me. They work, they land. I like them. And I like that, um... You know, Father Stewart is visibly exactly the same age in the flashbacks as he is in the future. and he is as unable to react to what he's seeing as as the director was probably hoping he would be. He just stares at it with like the same expression on his face as all of his the people he care about violently destroyed in front of him. this more of this, please, more of this and more of Frankie mermaids.
0: And so here we are, they're using a common trope, which is an important part, maybe in humor. If you have to lead the, the joke into a certain area, get people excited for it. And then the payoff is that they're hilariously gross <laughs> uh, murders that we, you know, because it's so over the top. This is why people go to a horror movie to be entertained and that this is comedy written much better, I think. And uh, and certainly, so we're at the, the midnight screening and we're two hours into this thing. and I am like, what are we doing what are we doing in Korea right now, guys? I'm fading here. <laughs> so I remember being kind of tired with the film uh, my first viewing, but then you pop right back when his Adeline, his precious Adeline, comes to to jump into his arms, and of course she doesn't make it uh, any better either. With one, I would say uh, the more practical effects in the <laughs> in the in the, in terms of exploding someone.
1: Yeah, actually, that's a great, very well done effect. I I also just love. I love the look on his buddy's face, like so much comp- confidence for no reason that everything's going to be good. Just like, yep, everything's great. And you're going to be great wait. too. You're going to have like three kids. You're going to name your kids after my me. <laughs> and then absolute destruction. Yeah. no, I, no this, These sequences were a win for me.
0: Mm-hmm, definitely. But then we flashback and uh, we're back at Altair's occult exorcism and the Velocipaptor is summoned And I believe he plucks the eye out of Father Stewart. And then ninjas catch him. And then he wakes up back with Carol in her place. And this is where we get the second montage.
1: Notice how much yada, yada, yada there is in this movie. (laughs) (laughs) There's an awful lot of like, oh, well, now I'm here. I guess I blacked out. There's a a small moment where ninjas are
0: going to assassinate him, but they fail. And then he, uh, he comes back wounded. And I think that uh, now that his life is kind of in jeopardy, um, he's not invulnerable as the pastor that he and Carol see that life is fleeting, perhaps, and the two of them say, let's not um, delay our, our union any longer. And, and really, one of the, the more touching and wonderful moments of the film where they another extraordinary music video edited together so nicely tells their entire story coming together. And uh, I think that the lighting effects and... The colors and the music all came. To, it was just extraordinary. I really, really thought that was a special moment in the film, and and I would say probably the highlight.
1: Frankie Mermaids is the only highlight <laughs> for me. You didn't, you didn't like that part of the film? No, I mean it's good. It's good. It's just I don't know something about Frankie Mermaids just really that really that hits that does it for me. Well, you're entirely right. So yeah, then it's Kung Fu showdowns.
0: That's right. And so afterwards, uh, another great moment is uh, they wake up and they're kind of basking in their in their um, consummation when ninjas kind of burrow through the, the windows and they have a, a fun, well-choreographed little uh, sparring match. And then they uh, get one of those ninjas to reveal what they needed to know. As it moves off, they discover that Father Stewart has been abducted by Wei Chan. And uh, they're going to go on about their fancy cocaine and their plot is kind of confusing they're gonna get super addictive cocaine get the entire city hooked on it then stop giving them the cocaine compelling them all to go to self-help groups which are run by the church which is run by way chan was that the plan so the plan was that Wei would a way chan we get a a holy army that was dedicated to doing his work by getting addicts to go to self-help groups which he runs and he wanted
1: Father's... Unfortunately, sword. this is, like, not even... This is not even fiction. Like, this is... <laughs> this is, like, four or five self-help groups in L.A. Oh, yeah?
0: Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. and
1: uh, All just, like, weird, like, Shaolin monk fronts for cocaine and money laundering.
0: And then the uh, Velocipaster arrives, but he's just Doug Jones. So he and Carol arrive. They are... They're kind of like uh, at the end of Greece, they're wearing their leathers and uh, they're ready to get down. They uh oh and then we finally have the payoff that it turns out that Doug Jones does not have or he does have a, an estranged brother that he wasn't the best only son. There's this really funny gag about how the other fa- his entire family had overlooked the second son. And so that's why the second son is with Wei Chan and has become also a a strong ninja warrior, I guess.
1: This is just the movie's continued commitment to jump the shark as often as it can, hoping that if you jump the shark on perfect on purpose, that it's it's comedy. Uh, I think the first jump the shark moment is well, okay, honestly, the first jump the shark mo- moment is making a movie called Velocipastor. But the the first one within the movie is is like, oh, it's ninjas. Because did you see Black Dynamite? It was ninjas in that. Now it's now it's ninjas in this. But then there's also this whole like, and I'm your brother the whole time. But it is pretty funny. They do the the payoff for the montages when you see like the whole time that the family is just lavishing Doug Jones's character, uh, with with praise and affection. Like his brother is just like horribly, horribly neglected. Always like somehow, like sitting in the backseat of the car, completely ignored. I don't know why that's so hilarious and funny, but it really is. Like that was that was good too.
0: Yeah, part of the joke is they set it up. You have like this. Like, it was contrived, it didn't make a lot of sense, and it was kind of jammed in there for the purpose of making this joke. But it's a funny joke, and it's one that they execute well, whether it belongs there or
1: not, who knows, but they did it. Again, a couple jokes that they wrote, and it worked. We just needed more of him, and he needed to be better. I think that's the problem. If we would have had more of the brother and the actor was, you know, anywhere in the ballpark of having the same chemistry as the two leads did, then I think that would have worked, like, a lot better.
0: Or if somebody had gotten into some of that spider kiss blend of cocaine. That could have been interesting too.
1: <laughs> spider kiss is is a pretty killer is a pretty killer name. Uh, almost four times as potent with spiders kiss cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> I think that um, again,
0: if you're in film school, if you have um, uh, ch- homages or tributes that you want to make to to directors that you admire, and you want to try and put a couple of them into film that you are making, that there might be a couple of shots or tricks that you would experiment with to try and emulate it. For example, I understand that uh, Brendan Steer was a fan of uh, Guillermo del Toro. So I understand that in Pan's Labyrinth, there was a character named Doug Jones
1: and Shock of Shocks. Oh, it, it's the actor. Doug, no, I, I was going to bring that up. Okay. Doug Jones is like the dude you get if you need someone to wear heavy prosthetics. He's this super tall, super skinny guy who's really good at acting physically, better than like, you know, with facial expressions. He's got a physicality to him that really um, carries through, even if you load him up with a bunch of stuff. So he's in Pan's Labyrinth, I think, as a couple of the monsters. He's also in um, Hellboy as Abe Sapien. And he's also, I think, in Shape of Water as um, the Abe Sapien stand-in type monster guy. Also, he was in, if you saw Hocus Pocus, did you see Hocus Pocus, that old Disney movie with the witches? Maybe not. Not really, no. He's in that too. He's in a, he's a zombie guy in that. So Doug Jones is actually like, when I was looking up this movie and I just saw Doug Jones, I was like, wait, hold on, is Doug Jones in this movie? And like, oh, no, 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 no. Okay. Yeah, was making
0: an homage, and so we get this fight scene, and fight scenes are important in all kinds of movies, and you would certainly have, especially if you have kung fu movies, oh, in your man. in your thing, that you would do, you know, something.
1: I just got it. the joke, and I just got the joke. Go go ahead and tell everybody, but I just got it. What you're about to I say, just,
0: like the the kung fu, the the karate, the fight scenes are choreographed, but just the shooting of it, there are no neat shots. I don't know, like you, I don't know. There's no like the fist cam. Where like you see a punch going into someone's face, it's easy to do and it doesn't take a lot of physical acting. Just there's a couple things they could have done, and it just kind of is a bit of a you know. It feels like they were rushed for time. They were they didn't really know what to do with staging. It just felt like the the shoestrings really show in the budget at, at a moment like this where they got maybe one day a little daylight, and the cops have been called because there's people running around in the park with dinosaur costumes. Yeah, fight,
1: fight choreography. Fight choreography has been like the Waterloo of so many independent film-makers. It's where it really shows that you don't know what you're doing and nobody has any experience. But I thought what you were going to say is that um, him being Doug Jones is a joke about... Because Doug Jones is like in all these great creature movies, and then like he's in this, and the creature outfit they have is so awful that it's like a meta joke on... And it probably is. Knowing this director now, as we do... That's probably the joke they're laughing their heads off about that did not click for us. I guess that's probably what the, because yeah, the, the, when we finally do see the dinosaur costume during the sequence and it's basically the same thing as those bouncy inflatable Brown T-Rex costumes people run around with that you see only it's like a Raptor version and it's barely even a Raptor version.
0: Yeah. One of my contentions with this is that it, you know, kind of builds itself as a dinosaur movie and it not, you know, not really a dinosaur movie and it's, the dinosaur isn't specifically good at being a dinosaur. The story goes that this was for a, a stage production at a high school that the uh, was financed by the state. like They got a grant to make it. It was made. It was never used, and nobody asked for it back. And so he just had this in the basement, and
1: it was <sighs> ready to go. I would have done it, too. <laughs> so that's what they had. I, I would have done, done it. it. That's what they- I would have done it too. Oh man! So it looks I'm like not- I'm not so different from this man.
0: <laughs> so they uh, they did the best they could with this thing. I might have put a googly on
1: on it or something. Just to <laughs> really good attack. Yeah, to fully drive home how like yeah, I know this is dumb. <laughs> I, know, I know this is dumb. I'm not trying. Yeah, and um, I think the
0: pressures wow. of, of filming that scene in the park, it, 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 as I understand it, that being in that costume was claustrophobic phobia it was terrible uh it was hot it was uh you couldn't breathe you couldn't move you couldn't uh, see what you were doing and i understand two people were in it and and one of them was a director so they were literally just shooting footage of them running around in this thing and uh hoped that they could fix it all in post i suppose
1: (laughs) (laughs) well that's just how it goes man like Wasn't it Ben... I think... Is it Ben Chapman, I think, is the name of the actor who was the original Creature from the Black Lagoon? Like, I mean, go look up what that guy had to go through. It's incredible. Like, I don't have... I'm afraid I just don't have any sympathy for people complaining about their monster costumes being claustrophobic and super hot, because that is the name of the game. They always are. And, like, the better they look, the more horrible it's going to be to wear.
0: (laughs) That's true. It can only make sense. And then, uh... I don't know. We should... Spoil the end, end, end of the movie. Um, let's leave something to the imagination for others. But uh, we, we've we've traversed this the incredible film <laughs> and uh, really looked at it a little too closely. You said you had a couple neat films that if people like this or were interested in more things like this, what you would recommend?
1: Yeah. So I think the experience that you think you're going to get with Velocipaster is just the most wacky gonzo nutso movie that you can find and that's kind of that is very much like the the hubbub around the movie i've actually seen a couple people posting in different facebook groups i'm on like yes this is an actual movie and then they'll show a picture of it like they've just found this you know the wildest weirdest movie that there is and this is kind of like the the cult of like sharknado this is people who don't really live in this world, but see something really crazy, and then they like the experience of being the one that shows other people this crazy movie. But I think there's just a lot of movies out there that do that a lot better that are, um, like pretty obtainable and pretty watchable. Um, I would say one I saw recently that I highly recommend is Killer Sofa. Killer Sofa, I think, is a it's either Australian or it's from New Zealand, I can't remember, but it is that it is a woman buys a it's not even a sofa it is a recliner but this recliner is like possessed and uh there's a lot of hilarious hilarious bits in the movie about the recliner just kind of like being in the background of a shot like scowling when people like don't know it's back there um that's a movie that is as wacky as uh you want it to be but it's also also you know very funny and very very well made um if you want to go you know ratchet it up and go for something even wackier house shark by ron bonk who also uh is the dude in charge of sub rosa cinema it's an independent um, genre film dvd label house shark is about a house that has a shark in it and it's just running around it doesn't explain how a shark can be in a place without water but there's just a shark in that house and you gotta watch out and these people are trying to figure out how to get this shark out of this house It is wilder, weirder, dumber, wackier than Velocipaster, but is also much funnier. If you want to go further, and actually these folks are Canadian, so I don't know how much currency that that wins it with you, but the guys from Astron 6, which was a now-defunct production company, were absolute masters at doing faux-genre films that were hilarious. Their best one was called Father's Day, and it was kind of like a gruesome horror exploitation film uh, they also did one called the Editor, which was a parody of sort of giallo films, like the Italian giallo films from the 70s and 80s. And that, they're both phenomenal, but they're also um, hard R-rated, so they're they're not movies you want with kiddos in the house. But they're pretty amazing. Astron Six also did a, a just a smattering of hilarious trailers and shorts too, and they're incredible. So those are all movies I would say check out and watch if you want kind of the experience of something really nutty and weird, I would say check those out before Velocipastor right on, which by the way, Velocipastor also ripped off black, black dynamites like ninja reveal. And they stole that gag. You remember that gag where after the big fight scene, it's like a quote from Gandhi about peace. It's like everybody's killed. And then they're like this thing about like the virtues of peace and anti-violence they stole that from Miami connection, man. But Miami connection, didn't know it was being dumb. Like it was being sincere about it. There's like, there's this sequence where this guy just like brutally, like machete murders a guy in a swamp. And then it cuts to like a quote about like the virtues of peace and nonviolence.
0: That's uh, like, the, the whole tin soldier song. You you know this one? The two armies Tin climb soldiers? a mountain. The Tin Soldier song. Two two armies climb uh, a mountain. They war over each other. They murder everyone for the the uh, the secret prize that's buried in the hill. And when they open the box, it says "Peace on Earth." Sick burn. <laughs> Way to go, guys! You don't know that song? The, the When Tin Soldier Rides Away. Which one? Who did it? Just it just says it's a song. It was a kid song from Woodstock.
1: Hmm. I I can only think of toy soldiers. I think. By Martina, I think, is the name of the person who did that. Should like
0: Canadian pop. No, oh, totally maybe it's so. Canadian. I didn't get out of here. The Canadian pop group Coven first recorded the song in 1969. I thought it was Joni Mitchell, wow. but what do I know? The song became oh, a North dude. American sensation when Skeeter Davis recorded the single, which also coincided with the Billy Jack phenomenon, whatever that all means.
1: I can't believe I forgot about Skeeter Davis and the Billy Jack phenomenon. How could I forget about that? Um, so, okay, Canadian songs. Let's touch on this real quick. Do you have this raccoon show up there? Cartoon about raccoons. Do you know this one?
0: Yeah. Bert, Sarah, and Fred. Okay. And their friends. Yeah. Okay.
1: So a little while ago, I saw a band from. Well, I don't. I've never seen the show, sir. I've never seen the show. But uh, some time ago, I saw a band from Canada and they covered the theme song to raccoons. So then I looked that up. That cartoon has the most heart poundingly epic theme song I've ever heard in my life. Like that thing is that raccoon that raccoon's theme is off the chain that's so that is like that has no business being the theme to a to like a kid's cartoon that thing like made me want to like like throw off my my coat and run into the desert and live like mad max and just like die for freedom like it, it was that thing's wild yeah
0: yeah that's an empowering song uh i play that on the guitar when i get a chance there's a terrific cover band um that did I found that uh, song covered by, I forget who it is. They do something, they do, I Got the Touch by the Transformers in full tra- Oh,
1: you're talking about the Cybertronic Spree. That's the band I saw. Did they, and they covered uh, Run With yeah. Us? Yeah, man. Cybertronic Spree. They I So one of the m- my favorite movies of all time is the 1986 animated Transformers movie. And Astron 6, who I mentioned a little bit ago, did Father's Day. One of their guys did a music video for Cybertronic Spree. Cybertronic Warrior was the song. So he did the music video for that. And that's how I found Cybertronic Spree in the first place. So here we had this, you know, b- this director I loved who did a music video for this band who was doing songs from one of the most important movies for me. And I like really wanted to see him live. They finally came to Portland for the first time and I saw them and they covered the Raccoon song. And it just blew my mind. Cause that song, yeah, that song is. And I, you know what? I cannot find that song to buy anywhere either. It's a good question.
0: Brutal. I'll, I'll uh well, I'm gonna find you the uh the raccoons Christmas video uh, movie. Yeah, and uh I'll, I'll I'll tell you you should watch that. It's touching and it's heartfelt and uh yeah that theme song is a big part of that being epic. And what's the other one? There's another Christmas one about this boy who builds a snowman and he gets one night one magical night flying around the world with this snowman and I don't know what it's called but uh, I think it's another Canadian um, production that I don't know. Is international though? I don't know. I've seen David Bowie, I think, present it. So maybe it was on the BBC. I'm not entirely sure. It's something too. I'll find them and uh, I'll hook you up with those. They're awesome.
1: Yeah, please do. Also, before we before we get too far away from this, are you psyched about that new Adam Adam Driver or is it Adam Driver? I think yeah, Adam Driver 65. dinosaur movie coming out. Yeah. <sighs> could be good. Could be good. It could be. I don't know.
0: I don't know. I, you know what? I really liked uh, what King Kong did. And if it's in that
1: vein. You liked what what happened now? Which one?
0: Kong. When uh, Peter Jackson made kind of like the, the gnarly-toothed, oh. super-sized uh, dinosaurs in his Kong movie, I thought that was a lot of fun. And uh, I, was re- I was down with Naomi Watts. I was down with Kong, Jack Black, uh, Adrian Brody. And if it's anything close to that, which I doubt it would be, but... I was down for the dinosaurs and how they looked in that film, so I, I can see myself
1: being okay with what they do in 65. In we'll see. Are these dinosaurs going to be different? I thought, like, from the trailer, it looked like they were just regular, ruggler dinosaurs. You never know. They got to
0: make them look like monsters some way or another. They'll look mangy or mean or scary. They'll do something to make them. In, in Kong, they, they had teeth sticking out in all different directions.
1: Are you sad that the more we learn about dinosaurs, the more we find that they're just giant chickens?
0: I think it's exciting.
1: What? <laughs> they downgraded the T-Rex from, like, Godzilla without spikes to just a giant chicken. Chickens, if you observe a chicken. Oh, man. Don't try to sell me on the terror of the chicken. They're territorial. They are
0: oh. mean. They're loud. They're aggressive. And uh, and they're very protective of their brood, you know? I, I can see a whole bunch of good reasons why a goose or a, or a turkey that was nine tons in size would be something that would be terrifying in a lot of ways
1: bro i have tangled with the goose before and there is much to be said about that yes the goose the the goose is a menace that's 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 not something i'm gonna argue against but i don't know man like don't i just been thinking for so long this was like dragons legit dragons and now it's just it's just like foghorn leghorn and I feel like that's disappointing I think science should have just quit When they were like as at, you know Figure out the point where we knew Where we understood them to be really cool And then just quit
0: Well consider that they might we be more like more Like the, uh, a harpy eagle Or like a cassowary As opposed to a peacock Or something like that Although I'm sure they're all different types
1: You know they still got some of them down there in the Congo <laughs> They got dinosaurs down there I hope they do they do. They got them.
0: All right. We are flat out of time. Uh, my all memory right. card is saying it's full. So,
1: <laughs> All right. Well, I'm glad we got to cover uh, this
0: so much. Thanks for all your input. And uh, I wanted to show you this. One of the books that Doug reads when he's learning about dinosaurs is called All About Dinosaurs by Roy Chapman Andrews.
1: That's awesome. Yeah. I was excited. <laughs> that's awesome, man. Mine's super old.
0: His was brand new. I don't know where you find... This is like super out of date and they had like a mint c-
1: edition. You've had that for how many years?
0: I don't know. I got it from the library when it was discarded for being in bad shape. And it's from
1: 1953. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. There's dinosaurs in there that aren't even real anymore. That is true. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thanks so much for being on the show. And uh, we'll be in touch again. I'll send you a couple of the links of things.
1: Yep, send him over. And if anyone out there hasn't heard it, go find that Raccoon song.
0: Yeah. Come with us. We got everything you need.
1: Oh, it rules.
0: All right, a great big thank you to Christoph Oaks for coming back again to be on the show. He's been a terrific... A supporter, a great friend, so thanks so much, Chris. This week's text is Dawn, spanning from pages 251 to 259 in the synopsis. Lex and Grant meet Ralph, the infant Triceratops, after awaking at 5 a.m. in the sauropod maintenance shed number 4, and the phones still aren't working. As Grant and the kids go to trip a motion sensor and get rescued, Arnold has inconveniently taken the motion sensors offline. Meanwhile, Arnold can't get the phones back on, so Wu and Gennaro convince him to reset the system. They need these phones back on to call for a doctor for Malcolm. During the system reset, the Tyrannosaur attacks the Hadrosaurs, causing a stampede. Grant and the kids are caught in the midst of the Hadrosaurs and escape up a tree for safety. As the systems come back on, restoring the phone lines, the control room notices that the Tyrannosaur has made a kill. Characters. Dr. Alan Grant. Grant wakes up to a loud grinding sound on page 251. He's sleepy and he's in pain. His head throbs, his body aches, and while his mission is to alert the mainland about the raptor-infested ship, he still has six hours, so... he. And he's drowsy and he feels bad so in other words he feels no urgency to get at it this morning he's wincing and lex says he looks bad on 252 and he admits that he feels bad grant observes the more anatomical elements of the infant triceratops than lex does and grant asks lex why the infant is named ralph and interacting in lex's playtime might be another example of grant relating with children uh he won't be letting lex try and ride this thing though Seeing past the infant triceratops, Grant sees the sun has risen, and he plans to go get the attention of the motion sensors, and he's concerned that the phones are still out on page 253. After the Triceratopses leave, he heads off to trigger the motion sensors. In the pink and purple morning light, Grant says the peaceful scene makes it difficult to feel like there's any threat around them at all on 254. After identifying some fantastically large dragonflies, he waves his hand in front of a motion sensor to no effect on 255. When Lex identifies the smell of rotten garbage, Grant becomes on alert, scanning the distant trees for movement but seeing nothing. He tells Lex it's her imagination. Perhaps he's saying that not to frighten her. And then Grant sees that the Hedrosaurs can smell this rotten smell too. To flee the stampede, Grant just lifts Lex up and goes on 257, hiding among a rocky outcrop on 258. Once the stampede has passed them, Grant leads the trio to climb quote, the largest tree. At 20 feet, he figures that they're high enough to be safe. Lex Murphy. Lex is giggling amidst the strange squeaking sound on 251. She has named a young Triceratops Ralph on page 252. Lex is babying Ralph, reassuring her, feeding her, patting her on the head. Lex introduces Ralph to Dr. Grant as her friend. Lex updates Grant on Tim's status. He has a broken nose. And location. He's off peeing, indicating she's a bit of a busybody. Lex observes the more infantile behavioral elements of the infant Triceratops than Grant does. Lex named the Triceratops after a boy at school, who apparently looked uh, like a piggish infant triceratops, also named Ralph. Lex has assumed a mother or caretaker role, perhaps in imaginary play, as if this were a doll, pretending to allow Grant to pet the triceratops, etc. But she knows she's just playing, as evidence when she asks Grant for permission to ride Ralph, or at least for his approval, which he denies. Lex tries to calm Ralph when he gets his frill caught between the bars of the shed and helps push her head free. On 253, when Grant leaves to trigger the motion sensors, Lex is triggered from the trauma of Ed Regis, leaving them in the Land Cruiser the night before, and refuses to be left behind. So, while walking in the park, they are all there when two large red dragonflies scare Lex. Later, she notices this smell like rotten garbage, which concerns her. On 256, Grant just lifts her and carries her, perhaps hearkening back to her request that he carry her the night before. I don't know. Uh, Recall that she is too big to be carried for long. While hearing a, quote, menacing roar, Lex digs her fingers into Grant's shoulders on page 258. And Climbing a tree to escape the stampede, Lex clutches at Grant and refuses to go any higher at around 20 feet. So she's the one that keeps them where they are. Tim Murphy. Tim's nose has swollen up. It's probably broken on 252. And Tim's gone out to take a leak and misses the entire Triceratops encounter on 253. Tim agrees wherever Grant goes... Even if it's into the park to trigger a motion sensor, the kids aren't going to be left alone again, on 254. During the stampede, Tim keeps up with Grant as they run, on 257. While climbing a tree to escape the stampede, Tim is too tired to climb any higher than 20 feet, also on 258. John Arnold. John Arnold is bleary-eyed and sipping coffee after pulling an all-nighter, getting the systems back up and running, on 255. He says, ah, hell, which is, again, in character for him, using some of the salty language as usual. Now, because he's tired and trying to focus very carefully, He has turned off all of the video monitors so he can stare at the computer code without any distractions. After scanning the code, Arnold suspects that Nedry has done something to the phones beyond shutting all the park systems down earlier. Executing the finny.object command erased the white rabbit.object files, so Arnold cannot figure out what Nedry did to jam the phones and Arnold doesn't know what to do. Upon Wu's recommendation to solve the problems by resetting the system, Arnold is concerned. He's reluctant to restart it because he hasn't trialed it before and not all the systems may come back online. It's risky because they may not maintain control. Arnold admits in this chapter he's not a computer expert, and without the phone lines he cannot call anyone who is for help on 255. After resisting the reset, Gennaro compels Arnold to do it, and Arnold complies with a very careful-what-you-wish-for sort of a shrug on 256. After resetting the power, Arnold's stomach heaves because the systems don't reset initially on 257. There's no response, and he has sweat on his brow. But then he recalls there are three safeties which he had forgotten about, so he switches them back on. When the power returns, he thanks God. The phones are still out, no static, just a deadline, which is good. But the system restart means Arnold can begin bringing systems back online, including the phones, on 258. Over the monitors, as the stampede dies down, Arnold spots that the Tyrannosaur has stopped running. It's made a kill on 259, down by the lagoon. And Arnold asks Gennaro to go get Muldoon to go inspect the killing site. Dr. Henry Wu. Dr. Wu joins Arnold from his lab. It's 5 a.m. Was Wu pulling an all-nighter in the lab, too? We don't know. Wu says the phones sound like they're being jammed by a modem, but they are not on 255. Wu suggests shutting the system down and clearing the resident memory that's jamming the modem. Recall Wu has had helpful suggestions for Arnold before, notably in search of the White Rabbit Object command earlier, so he's showing that he's smart and helpful in a variety of ways. He's also recommending a RAM dump to, and to search that code, but that has complications with it, too. Their best bet is to reset the system. Dennis Nedry is mentioned. He's jammed the phone lines very well, we're told, on 255, and inserted some kind of a lockout into the program code, and I don't know why. Donald Gennaro. Gennaro, quote, storms in in desperate need of a phone on 255. Malcolm is worse, reports Gennaro. It says that Malcolm needs medical attention, which is like old news today, but important in terms of us recalling that there is an urgency to everything. Malcolm's life is in jeopardy if they can't get him a doctor. Gennaro is forceful with Arnold about getting Malcolm a doctor, summarizing how bad the situation is. Quote, Look, there's a sick man over in the lodge. He needs a doctor or he'll die. You can't call for a doctor unless you have a phone. Four people have probably died already. Now shut down and get the phones working! On 256. And like, good for Gennaro. He's really advocating for Malcolm's well-being here. Or he's terrified with the liabilities the park faces as people continue to die. That's a possibility too. After resetting the power when it doesn't restore right away, Gennaro is the first to ask what's wrong, and Arnold is just finished telling him how risky this was. (laughs) And then after the system reset, Gennaro immediately picks up a phone, and he's remaining acutely focused on calling for help on 258. Gennaro gets under Arnold's skin by continuing to ask too many questions, questions like, what's this, and why manually? Arnold snaps at him, rightly so. And after the Tyrannosaur kills a Hadrosaur, Gennaro is asked to inform Muldoon to send him out to inspect the kill site on 259. Dr. Ian Malcolm-Ginner reports that Malcolm is getting worse on 255 and that it's a matter of urgency that he gets a doctor. That's what we learn about Malcolm. Uh, Triceratopses. We meet Ralph the Triceratops on 252. She looks like a big pink pig and makes squeaking sounds. They call this a he, but it would be a she, probably, right? It's the size of a pony. As an infant, it doesn't have any horns yet, but it does have a curved bony frill behind its big soft eyes. It has a snout and it eats hay food falls from either side of its mouth as it chews indicating that it likely isn't being portrayed here with cheeks the triceratops licks its lips after chewing and then waits to be fed more recall before we've been given a description of a triceratops with a beak like a rhinoceros so this lip licking should be visualized akin to a rhino licking its fleshy pointy mouth i guess nonetheless it is also described as having slender sharp teeth and a beaky upper jaw like a parrot its skin is dry and warm with the pebbled texture of a football and it has a thick tail that it wags when it is happy. An adult triceratops snorts like a horse mite on 253, and when the infant gets its frill caught between the bars, it squeaks. The adult is so big it casts a shadow enveloping the infant, and its leg is thicker than a tree trunk. Its feet have five curved toenails like an elephant's. The adult has a six-foot-long head with three long white horns, two above the eyes and one above the nose, and they have brown eyes, according to Crichton. Parentally, the adult licks the infant, causing the infant to nuzzle with the adult. The two walk away before Lex tries to feed the adult. Hadrosaurs. A herd of these are in the distance, but in the sauropod paddock on uh, 254. They are large and eating foliage from trees at the edge of the lagoon. Some stand knee-deep in the lagoon and have flat heads. When they look around, their heads, quote, swivel, and they have a baby with them, too. As mentioned back on page 150, there are infant hadrosaurs in the herd, and the infants return here too. They squeak and scramble, never venturing far from the adults. These animals are not breeding in the wild, and there are only 11 in the park, but we're told that there are two herds of them in the chapter. Uh, A second herd is a bit further south. Sometimes they rear up on their hind legs, resting their forearms on tree trunks to reach higher branches, and they honk as a herd on 256, and they become agitated, twisting and turning, hurrying out of the water, circling the young ones to protect them. As the hadrosaurs begin to run from the tyrannosaur, Grant can feel the earth shaking on 257. The hadrosaurs swing their big tails in defense and honk loudly and continuously. They stampede in a quote kind of swirl on 258 and with quote surprising speed in a tight cluster. They are said to each weigh 5 tons, though we know that's not entirely true, some of them are infants, and they are so big and strong during the stampede one hadrosaur hits a boulder, a huge rock, and sends it rolling away into the field. Apatosaurus. An Apatosaurus can be seen far off in the distance in this chapter on 254, standing above the trees with a tiny head also swiveling on its long neck. Tyrannosaurus. With a roar, the Tyrannosaur bursts from the trees 50 yards away near the lagoon on 256. It is preceded by a rotten stench betraying its proximity. This is a callback to the rotten stench of carnivores that was mentioned a few times earlier in the novel. It rushes across the open field with huge strides towards the Hadrosaurus. Recall, in episode 29, Big Rex, the Tyrannosaur covers 30 yards in four bounding steps on page 148, or 7 steps per yard while bounding. These are huge strides, perhaps even greater than 7 yards each, maybe. In any case, at even 7 yards a pace, she's spanning 50 yards in 7 steps. In glimpses, Grant can see the tyrannosaur lunging at the hadrosaurs on 257, and we learn that it has killed something by the lagoon on 259 localities. The Sauropod Maintenance Building. This is a maintenance building filled with stacks of hay and supplies, which appear to be labeled Sauropod Maintenance Building number 4 on 251, is filled with automated mechanical equipment which delivers hay bales to the feed troughs, allowed grinding sound accompanies mechanical clanking as a conveyor belt automatically distributes hay bales, raising them up out of the basement, storage, and through the ceiling, presumably into a feeding trough on 251, and it's a concrete building with a concrete floor. The Sauropod Maintenance Building number 4 label confirms to Grant that they are in the Sauropod paddock. This label is on a grey metal box hanging on the wall, which is where the phone is located. And These buildings have landline telephones, but the telephones are still on the fritz. It has several rooms, as indicated by Grant having to go around a corner to discover Lex feeding Ralph. One room has bars in the windows, which Lex feeds Ralph through. The sauropod paddock. Beyond the bars, Grant spies, quote, open fields in the sauropod compound on page 253. Now, there are at least two triceratops, a small family, in this paddock, where they eat out of the sauropod maintenance building. This is ostensibly the sauropod paddock, right? Recall, we're told triceratops move in groups of at least less than... Of, Groups less than six, and that there are eight in total in the park. We don't know how many groups there are, but here are two of the Triceratops. Sequentially, recall earlier in the book, when the tour entered into the park yesterday, they passed the Hypsilophodon highlands in the tour around page 135, then the Dilophosaurs and the Jungle River and the Aviary in control around page 40, and it was by the Aviary that the Triceratops are spotted before reaching the Tyrannosaur paddock from which you can see the sauropod paddock. Now, that's the sequence, right? In that earlier scene, there were only two Triceratops there, and here we have two more. Uh, We know there are eight, so perhaps there are two more small groups in other paddocks, keeping them separate, right? Recall that if they are in groups that are too big, they kill each other to death. (laughs) In the morning after the storm, the fields are warm and humid. The sky is soft and pink and purple. On page 254, as a white mist clings to the low ground, the Triceratopses are mingling with a herd of Hadrosaurs, and the motion sensor is a black box on a tripod. There is also a rocky outcrop with a stand of big conifer trees on 258. That's what we learn about that. The control room, again, it is described as darkened on 257, though we know that there is a big whopping window that overlooks the whole park, and the sky is a soft pink and purple, but it's not pink and purple in the control room, it's dark. Nonetheless, it is darkened for 30 seconds because the power is reset. When the power goes out, it becomes even darker. Stylistic techniques. Italics, he's a very messy eater on 252, suggests... Lex, uh, she's adding emphasis here as if she's become the authority on infantry ceratopses and is now informing Grant all about them. It's cute and what kids might do. Then turn the goddamn safety systems off! Yells Gennaro, obviously frustrated that he's not being heard on 256. This is a life and death situation and it's time to get the job done. So Good for Gennaro. It was morning. He had slept the whole night on 251. Here the colon sort of acts like a sleeping bag, where the bag is the statement. It was morning, but inside the sleeping bag is the realization that Grant has slept the whole night, which is kind of a surprise. The colon here introduces a statement or an explanation rather than a list. The head came down into view. Six feet long, with three long white horns one above each of the large brown eyes, and a smaller horn at the tip of the nose on 253. Again, a colon is a great tool for presenting a list. And in this case, the head comes down, and we get a colon, and then a list of the Triceratops' head features, so an effective colon. So, just reset, colon. Shut the system down, and you'll clear the memory on 255. Here, the colon presents an explanation, as colons are wont to do. Semicolon, here, quote, He was exhausted, semicolon. He'd been working for 12 hours straight on 255. The semicolon here sticks two related clauses together in a very cause-and-effect sort of way, so that works for me. Rhetorical questions. You like hay, don't you? On 252, says Lex to Ralph, in a motherly sort of way that is done to build a connection between a parent and a baby, maybe. He likes it when you pat him, don't you, Ralph? Continues this trope, as if Lex has become the mother and therefore the authority on what the infant does and does not like. Will you just let me work for Christ's sake? exclaims Arnold feeling the pressure to get the park back up and running on 257. Ellipsis, and he didn't like that idea that the phones were still down. Ellipsis on 253. Here the ellipsis is sort of like a thing left unsaid, in a don't speak of the devil or the devil may come sort of superstitious way. Not that Grant is superstitious, only that this is a lingering grave, problematic thought that he doesn't want to linger on, and the ellipsis suggests that it's challenging not to worry about it. Well, it's just ellipsis. The safety systems don't allow the computer to be shut down, and M dash on 256, which is both an ellipsis and an M dash. The ellipsis is Arnold gathering his thoughts, and the M dash is him being interrupted before Gennaro makes his request crystal clear. The duck bills were agitated, twisting and turning, hurrying out of the water, circling the young ones to protect them, ellipsis on 256. And this ellipsis is that pregnant pause where everyone is connecting the dots the rotten stench, the agitated herbivores. Something's wrong here. All right, M dash. Maybe the systems will come back on startup. M dash. But maybe they won't. On 255, says Arnold. Often Crichton would use a semicolon here, but this is more of a pause, a turn in the sentence, but not necessarily a new clause. So I guess the M dash is the appropriate tool here. It's not M dash on 256. Is Lex being interrupted by the honking of hadrosaurs? They cut her off, finally. No static hissing this time. M dash. Just nothing at all. On 258, here the M dash operates like a less formal colon. Presenting a quick-paced observation, perhaps. Exclamation. Pardon me for yelling in this part. He had slept the whole night on page 251, with the exclamation suggesting surprise and regret. Obviously, he'd intended to try to get them saved. Uh, They're on a tight timeline here. YOW! exclaims Lex, upon having two huge red dragonflies buzz by her on page 254. This suggests surprise and probably terror at the same time. It's a good use of exclamation. Now shut down and get the phones working! exclamation. Janair was being as forceful as possible to insist that Arnold reset the system and get them the phones back. P.U. exclamation on 256 exclaims Lex as she notices in her obnoxious and childish way a rotten smell. That smell! Exclamation she adds with exclamation as if smelling something rotten is the most offensive thing that's ever happened to her as little kids are commonly portrayed as doing. And here's kind of an aside. What do the letters P and U stand for when you say PU? I hadn't any idea, so I looked it up, and the best answer that I can find is that it has Latin roots connecting to the word putere, which means to stink, and has linguistically become connected to words like putrid and pus inferring meanings of rotting and bad or unpleasant smells. One of these words, so I've read, includes the word pew, P-E-W, an early 17th century word that means to, quote, express contempt, disgust, or derision. And it's possible that the overly emphasized P-U statement one might make, pronouncing P-E-W, became expressed alpha-grammatically as the letters P and U. The meaning remains the same. You stink. But the expression has evolved over the centuries as language happens to do. Dost thou expiate thine wonder, or merely mobble thine face with mated thoughts? I don't even know what that means. But language has evolved from there, so thank goodness. I told you! On 257, exclaims Lex again, as the Tyrannosaur bursts toward the Hadrosaurs, revealing that she was correct that the smell wasn't her imagination. Lex is becoming the most exclamatory character in this novel. Nobody listens to me, she says! Exclamation mark. Come on, kids! On 257, adds Grant. Now they're shouting and running as part of this emerging stampede. Meta-text! In this chapter, as my terrific guest from episode 16, Malcolm, Dr. David Hohen laughed, Uh, There are a number of carefully detailed systems schematics of computer screens that are laughably detailed compared to some of the half-baked dinosaur details that are in this novel. As if Crichton really knew more about computers than he did about the subject of his novel dinosaurs. Well, we get the first of many screen displays as a piece of text on page 257. The Jurassic Park system startup. It's in a new font, a new font size. There appears to be a flow chart, and everything is displayed in outlined boxes. It rather illustrates how complicated or detailed the system startup procedures may be when we get to that part later in the book. Capitalization. Sauropod Maintenance Building number 4 is a sign. Again, capitalized, so we know that this is a sign, and not to, I guess, have it be misunderstood as anything but a sign on page 251. Literary techniques. We have some similes. His head throbbed, and his body ached as if he had been beaten up suggests that he's finding bruises and tender spots where he's been struck and harmed, and this is distinctly dis- uh, distinctly not suggested to be as if he'd been working out and you're swollen and sore, or played football like a game and you're, you're achy after that, but rather you're beaten up like you were attacked. So the simile extends the concept that he was attacked and it was not consensual. So that's good. From around the corner, he heard a squeaking sound like a rusty wheel. We can imagine the high note of a whining creak, but does this match the sound of a dinosaur? I guess it does, though as a simile, it doesn't prepare us to meet a dinosaur infant or otherwise in the next paragraph. I liked how as if he'd been beaten up is kind of in that line of conceit that uh, he non-consensual attack. This sound of a rusty wheel doesn't fall in line with seeing a biological animal. So I, I I, I don't like that simile as much. You heard a deep snorting sound like the snort of a very large horse, and suddenly the baby became agitated on 253. Here we hear a mother Triceratops who apparently sounds like a horse snorting. We can perfectly imagine the sound of a horse snorting, and so this simile effectively conveys the sound we hear. So it's a good simile. Had five curved toenails like an elephant's on 253, and we can imagine that an elephant has five toes, I guess. Do you really know what an elephant's foot looks like? Can you imagine it's five distinct toes and five curved toenails? Probably not. An African elephant has four toenails on each foot, each front foot, and only three on their rear according to the Reed Park Zoological Society in Tucson, Arizona. Also I'm looking at an elephant's toenails and curved isn't the word I'd describe them with. Frankly they look more like an entire hoof of a horse on each toe. And then there's the Triceratops toe. What does that look like? Well, I went back to Episode 7, The Shape of the Data, where the new section, if you go to the show notes, features a a link to a 3D Triceratops skeleton from the Melbourne Museum, where you can zoom and rotate and investigate the Triceratops horridus. Now, the foot of the T-horridus in the model is a five-fingered forelimb. The digits splayed out almost like a fan. How that looked covered in foot meat, I don't know, but definitively, it has five toes. Do they all appear distinct enough to have warranted a claw or a toenail each? Probably. As for the hind limb, it has four toes, positively. Again, all distinct, all likely warranting a toenail or claw of their own. So, in any case, this simile of Crichton's doesn't really match up. If this is a five-toed forelimb of a Triceratops, it wouldn't have looked like an elephant's because it has five distinct fingers and claws, whereas an elephant only has four. And they're more likely kernels in a cob of corn than they are like curved claws. Also, nothing about an elephant's actual foot looks like what's described by Crichton. That said, skeletally, if you look at an elephant's foot bones, yeah, it sort of does look like a triceratops skeletal foot bones. So who am I to judge? I don't know. But let's be clear, though. Even if a triceratops foot in fact looked like an elephant's foot, an elephant's foot doesn't have five curved toenails. That I can confirm. Sometimes researching these similes... It gets silly. (laughs) Uh, It stinks like rotten garbage, says Lex of the smell around her, which we can all relate to, especially consider the tale from episode 4, Puntarinas, featuring my excellent guest and buddy Rob, uh, as we regaled you with the tale of taking out the garbage during the city of Windsor's 101-day city workers' strike back in 2009. Yeah, the smell of rotten garbage has its side effects. We'll put it at that. The sound of the approaching herd was deafening, like the sound of jets at an airport on 258, which is a great simile. We all know how damned loud airplane can be, the tremendous roaring of their incredible engines. As Lex screams, we can hear her over the noise. This only adds to the confusion and madness, and it's great. Uh, movie adaptations. I've heard you can find images and perhaps some descriptions that Ralph was going to be in Spielberg's Jurassic Park. And they even produced a puppet or a sculpture. It was cut from the script, but I've overheard that Lex was going to ride this thing at some point. So, Ralph, she or he, was apparently present in some adaptation of the script, and popular enough that Stan Winston's studio produced a puppet, but didn't make the final cut. C'est homage, as the French fans of the movie might say. The dinosaurs. So The Triceratops is described as having food spilling out of its mouth on either side, as if it is sloppy, but also indicating that it doesn't have any cheeks on 252. I've heard a fairly rational idea that herbivores, dinosaur herbivores, wouldn't have been sloppy eaters. They were massive. If there were anything that they could do efficiently, it was likely consume, digest, and metabolize food in exceptional upscaled ways. There's no other explaining multiple ton herbivore surviving for millions of years. The Triceratops, quote, licks its lips after chewing and then waits to be fed more. So it doesn't have cheeks, but it has lips. Also, Triceratops has a distinct beak likely keratinous similar to a bird's, perhaps not as hooked and tactile as a parrot's speak, but you get the idea. I don't think it had lips to lick. Might it have had a long prehensile tongue that it might have licked with? Well, as an accomplished herbivore, it's entirely likely they had a tongue that could help it collect and retain vegetation. Cattle have this, parrots have this. I think ceratopsians could have had very useful tongues for sure. Why not? Nonetheless, it also describes as having slender, sharp teeth and a beaky upper jaw like a parrot. It's like Crichton's anatomical descriptions aren't too off-base, but his behavioral inventions don't match what he's describing. The food falling out and it's licking its lips. He describes the animal correctly, but then he, he makes it behave unusually. Uh, The Triceratops has a thick tail that wags when it's happy as Grant pets it, which is a clear dog analog. Again, the animal behavior Crichton imbues his dinosaurs with is modeled closely after mammals. The adult Triceratops licks the infant like some mammals do to ingratiate themselves and socialize with their offspring. This is a very mammalian interpretation again, this being like something a cat or a dog might do. I looked it up and found that some geckos and bearded dragons lick each other. Geckos apparently sense the world around them through their tongues. Bearded dragons do this and... Apparently, can sense pheromones for mating, mark their territory and measure temperatures with their tongues as well. But that said, the Triceratops is still exhibiting very mammalian characteristics, and I prefer my big non-avian dinosaurs to be a little stranger than the familiar mammalian examples around us today. Timeline: Soft light shines through the windows indicating it is morning. 5 a.m. by Grant's watch on 251. They still have six hours until the boat infested with raptors reaches the mainland, and that is important to their mission. Don't forget that part. Park management. Okay, this is a very strange predicament, but I think I'm reading this correctly. Grant has marched out to a motion sensor, but it doesn't seem to be working on 255. Now, is the motion sensor supposed to say, Hi, Grant, I'm working to him? I don't know, but he can tell. He can tell it's not working. And it supposes that it has something to do with the phones still being down too. But it's not because of the phones. We immediately flash to the interior of the control room where John Arnold is carefully studying the computer code and to avoid distractions he has quote, taken all the video monitors offline on 255. So this reads as follows: Arnold didn't just turn the monitors in the control room off to avoid distractions. He took all the video monitors in the park offline. This is why Grant isn't picked up by the video monitor, because they are offline per Arnold's decision, so he could focus on the computer code. This is while they're supposedly searching for additionals in the park, i.e. Grant and the kids. So that's not the most seamless of plotting, but it explains why Grant isn't being found on the monitor. That's a really lousy plot point, right? It's not a plot hole, but it's just... A gross contrivance of the plot to fit the story. In another moment that's actually pretty good, in terms of the system's design, Crichton has included a precise detail that in the event of a reset, expecting that there's a problem somewhere in the system, it requires a startup to be done manually to prevent a failure loop. I think that's a pretty good detail. So you you get the good with the bad. With that being said, there are a couple contrivances and plot in this chapter that I've got problems with. So, the plotting in this story gets a bit sticky after the Tyrannosaur attack. Grant, who is desperate to get them rescued, falls asleep at 9 p.m. When's the last time you went to bed at 9? And sleeps all night on a concrete floor. When's the last time you slept on a concrete floor, undisturbed, all night? Okay, so we'll go with that. That's fine. Unbelievable, but okay. Next, Arnold, who's counting on the motion sensors to find the missing people. He takes the motion sensors offline so he can study the code without distraction. Yikes. Okay, in a more realistic world, they should have found Grant and the kids last night by like 9.30 p.m. And through some contrivance of plot, Grant sleeps away the night, and then Arnold takes the motion sensors offline so our adventures through Jurassic Park can continue. We like that, I guess, but it's a little imperfect. It's worth noting. Second, Nedry has jammed the phone lines. There doesn't appear to be any good reason for this, and he's jammed them very well. And this helps bring the park into chaos later, which is good in terms of us having a book that we love. But why did Nedry jam the phones? What part of his plan required that, beyond turning off all the security measures, that he also jammed the phone lines? It's just another contrivance of plot, and it happens because reasons, you know? Third, here's a bit of an issue with, you know, all of us. We all had when we read this novel. There are two big red dragonflies with six-foot wingspans, which Grant explains as being, quote, The Jurassic was a time of huge insects on 254. While Grant isn't wrong, what, did InGen clone the DNA of dragonflies and bring them back as well? Is this exciting? What these dragonflies are doing here, I have no idea. And I'm fairly confident they not only don't belong, but they stick out like a sore thumb and sort of ruin the entire concept of the park. But hey, here they are. The most famous giant dragonfly is called Meganura. Though the insect was from 150 million years before the Jurassic period in the Carboniferous and had a wingspan of about 70 centimeters, which is like two and a half feet. So that's not likely this critter that Crichton is referring to. It's too old and it's too small. Frankly, a six foot wingspan on a dragonfly is unheard of. This is a meter longer than any known fossil dragonfly, but cool, I guess. Now, 70 centimeters is whoppingly smaller than what Crichton describes, but a common dragonfly is like only 7 centimeters in wingspan. So a Carboniferous Meganeura dragonfly is 10 times bigger. And this stupidly huge Anisopteran monster in Jurassic Park is a full meter bigger than that. So th- this this bit here is a bit too fantastic by any scientific standard. Next, once Arnold gets the phones back up, Gennaro picks up the receiver and begins dialing, but stops. The phones are working, but he stops calling for a doctor. Oh, Malcolm, you were so close to getting a doctor, but no. Gennaro spots on the monitor's hedrosaur stampeding and gets distracted. Uh, The monitors must be on again now. I guess they they were brought back online either immediately or automatically, uh, but they're back and they're they're stopping Gennaro from calling for this doctor that he's been so you know, hell bent on getting. Uh, but he's distracted and he forgets. Then back to the same old Gennaro, he's just asking questions like, What's happening? Finally, the last thing that sticks out as a bit difficult to believe is all the dust. It's so dusty. Grant can hardly see anything. They're 20 feet up in a tree at the end of this chapter, and there's still too much dust to see around them. Grant coughs from the dust, closes his eyes to keep it out of them. A lot of dust. It makes it very intimidating, exciting, and the idea that the Tyrannosaur could be right there. But you can't see it because of all the dust. (laughs) But, like, didn't they just have an incredibly powerful tropical storm at 7 p.m. the night before? Like, only 11 hours ago? And isn't it said to be a moist and humid morning with mist clinging low to the ground on page 254? Like, these are signs of a wet environment. Also, this is near the lagoon, i.e. where the water flows towards. The groundwater around the lagoon would make this, in terms of grades, the wettest ground compared to the higher ground where the water runs away from. I guess what I'm saying is after a huge tropical storm down by the lagoon on a humid morning, it shouldn't be this dusty. That's all I'm saying. But don't let that bother you from, you know, an exciting stampede. It's good. And let's compare this to the movie a bit. There are a lot of similarities here. Uh, So much of what happens in the control room in this chapter, in the film, uh, happens as well in a scene called Shutdown, I think. So here are the similarities. The scene occurs the next morning after the attacks. Grant and the kids have spent the night together, and the control room is still trying to get the park back up and running. But there have been problems. That is the same in the book and the movie. Grant and the kids meet some dinosaurs in the park and continue their journey through the jungle. People in the control room debate whether or not to reset the system to restore the telephones. Arnold requires some convincing to go through with the reset, voicing his concerns that this is a risky option. He admits that they've never reset before and there's no certainty the system will uh, return properly. Arnold has to be snapped at to get his attention and to do the hard thing to save them all. Arnold does reset the system and the power goes dark. And there are three safety switches with latch covers. That's the same. Then there's a terrific stampede after the Tyrannosaur attacks the herd, and the T-Rex kills one of the animals. But of course there are some differences. Rather than hadrosaurs, Hepatosaurs, and Triceratops, as we get in the book, Grant and the kids meet a Brachiosaurus in the treetops, and then discover a raptor nest at the bottom of the tree. Rather than Wu, Gennaro, and Arnold arguing in the control room, it's Sattler, Arnold, Hammond, and Muldoon. In the film. In the novel, Gennaro is fighting with Arnold to get Malcolm a doctor, because he's in really bad shape. In the film, they're just trying to stop the dinosaurs from attacking people, I think. Hammond instructs Arnold to do this, and Arnold is dead set against doing it, whereas it was Wu's idea in the novel, and Gennaro's forceful advocacy on Malcolm's behalf that gets Arnold to listen. Muldoon brings up the lysine contingency for some reason in the film, which is vehemently dismissed by Hammond. Hammond is very focused on saving people's lives, which makes him opposed to the lysine contingency? I don't quite understand that part. Arnold says, hold on to your butts, which we all love. (laughs) But he doesn't say that in the novel. In the novel we get, you asked for it, you got it. That's a good line too. Then the power resets, but it trips a circuit breaker and they have to restore power manually. While the power is out, Hammond insists that everyone go to the emergency bunker until Arnold returns and gets the systems back online. But in the novel, this is when they wind up running on auxiliary power, which becomes a big issue later, but that's not a concern in the film whatsoever. Uh, The Stampede is by a herd of hadrosaurs. Recall there were only 11 hadrosaurs, some of them juveniles, whereas in the film it was Gallimimus, and there were easily two dozen of them in that scene, so the novel has much different dinosaurs and many fewer dinosaurs. And in the novel, uh, Control is fully aware of the Stampede. I think in the movie it goes unnoticed by the park admin. They're they're all running into a bunker, and the manual override hasn't been performed yet. And uh, one last thing, if we're all building a map, here's part of our island layout. Uh, The sauropod maintenance building number four is an automated feed trough filled with supplies and feed. I believe the parentheses in the numeral four suggest that this isn't necessarily the fourth maintenance building in the sauropod paddock, but rather the fourth maintenance building in a series of low concrete sheds throughout the park. And I'm surprised that, you know, our heroes haven't really gone very far into the park. There has always been this feeling that they've traveled so far, but really, they escaped into the tyrannosaur paddock, exited the transfer paddock into the Sauropod paddock, and then spent the night in the maintenance shed. The next morning, they're still by the lagoon where they were yesterday. Right? They're not much further from that at all. We end this chapter only about 50 yards away from the maintenance shed, where they spent the night, 20 feet up a tree. So they haven't actually gone very far uh, since the attack last night, although it feels like they've gone so far through the, through the the uh, through the park already. I guess exiting one entire paddock is pretty good. All right, I want to thank again my special guest today, Christoph Oaks. Chris, thanks so much for everything. You've been a great guest on the show for, uh, since the beginning, a great supporter. Thank you so much. Uh, and I want to sign off today thanking everyone else for, for joining me. whether you've been here for one episode or all of them thank you so much if you want to read along in the book add some thoughts to what we've been discussing on the show or be a guest on the show and chat with me about anything you like about jurassic park you can do that by connecting with me at ryan s rogers at gmail.com if you'd like to be a guest drop me a line we can try and set something up we can rehash and tear down and gush over and chit chat about any part of the book or also not the book all you'd like the Jurassic Park cast is a part of the Spring Chickens' banner of amateur intellectual properties, including the Spring Chickens' funny pages, Tomb of the Undead graphic novel, the second-lapse graphic novelettes, the infantry, and the worst of them all, the King Street Capers. And you can find links to all that baggage in the show notes or by visiting the schickens.blogspot.com or finding us on Facebook at facebook.com slash springchickencapers. Or me, I'm on Twitter at RogersRyan22. Thank you dearly for tuning into the Jurassic Park cast. Jurassic Park podcast where we talk about the novel Jurassic Park. And also not that too. Until next time.